Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the 148th edition of DF Direct Weekly, which is and shall always remain our weekly discussion show discussing the latest gaming and technology news bunch of stuff to get through this week, uh, mostly centred on Sony's latest State of Play presentation. Joining me to go through all of this stuff, it's a big welcome back to Oliver McKenzie. Hey, Rich, I'm joining you from a new Hello. undisclosed location. <laughs> but as always, it's, yeah. it's a pleasure to be on the show. No longer within the GameCube, though. No, the GameCube has been retired. Okay, fair enough. And uh, John Linneman, hi. Hello, it's good to be here, and it's good to have Oliver back there from his brand new Batcave equipment, <laughs> which uh, he's, he's, he's new lab. It re- it remains undisclosed to all of us. <laughs> he could he could be anywhere on the planet right now, for all we know. Indeed. Um, okay, <laughs> good stuff. Let's uh, crack on by talking about the state of play. Lots to get through here. Okay, so State of Play 2024, it was our first look really at Sony's plans for the coming year because, um, well, they've been unclear up until now and um, there's been a certain degree of uncertainty about the amount of input that first-party studios are going to have. And, um, yeah, I guess mostly it was a third-party showing. Um, Where should we start? Let's start with the game that really caught our attention that probably isn't going to be coming in 2024. Uh, Death Stranding 2 from uh, Kojima Productions. Um, I'm going to kick this off with a wow, but I'm interested in your opinions on this one, John, because it's pretty stellar stuff. Oh, I think my opinions are pretty well known at this point. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was an excellent trailer. And I got to say, like, kudos to Kojima Productions for finding a way to produce a first-party published game on both PlayStation and Xbox. That... That is an impressive accomplishment, and hopefully people will enjoy both games as a result. But this was uh, this one's interesting for beyond the. So first of all, there's the game itself, the concept, the visuals, the storytelling. Uh, I was a big fan of the original. Uh, I've gone over that many times as to why it's a very curious, strange game. But it did a lot of interesting things for like open world design, trying to change it from focus on the hitting your waypoints and just reaching those points, and actually putting uh, an emphasis on the traversal part and planning. Uh, but you know that story was weird. It wrapped up, but it kind of came together in the end. I would say, but this this trailer then comes along, and you're just like what is even happening? And that's what I admit. That is one of the things I've always enjoyed about Kojima produce, uh, produced games is that he is kind of a showman with how he presents these things. I mean, that goes back, I think to metal gear solid two, yeah. uh, which by the way, there's a shot early in that when they're inside that little facility with that very cool image of uh, the two characters sort of presented in a monochromatic fashion, where some of those those scenes reminded me of the tanker in MGS2, and it was cool to see it kind of done in really high high definition. Uh, but so the main thing here is that this is our first real look at, I would argue, current gen only Decima, right? Yeah. 
because uh, Horizon Forbidden West was a cross-platform game. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the DLC was PS5 only, but it's still based on a cross-generation game. This this game is clearly being made specifically for this new generation and likely the PS4, sorry, the PS5 professional as well, mm-hmm. which we presume to exist. We'll see. Uh but the quality of everything on display, both in terms of the artistry and the actual technical makeup, was really, truly outstanding. Uh, the character rendering, still phenomenal, as it was before. Including one of my new favorite things, as many others, is the low frame rate puppet that simulates stop-motion animation, which was simply delightful and very, very unexpected. Uh, and that kind of ties back into where I was going before with like, that's the thing about Kojima games is like, it's like this, they present something to you, this vision of something with a lot of different visuals and concepts and ideas that on the surface don't make any sense. And it actually creates a sense of mystery and you want to learn more and see more of what's here. And I think they do a really surprisingly great job in this trailer in a way that reminded me of watching trailers at E3 during the early 2000s rather than the more commercialized, cinematic, CG-fied style stuff that is common these days, where it's this perfect blend of, of tantalizing story segments with a lot of gameplay shots showing various environments that you explore and man those environments the the sheer level of variety on display here compared to the original game is pretty staggering i think uh i mean what do you think oliver i mean one thing that we should really talk about actually i'm just seeing it now is the the fluid simulation stuff that's actually one of my favorite things about it and what really elevates this there's that part where he's running through sort of a dry riverbed and you actually see the water sort of chasing him through it and knocking down bridges along the way and just that sort of interaction we saw stuff like this with the tar in the first one uh I think that's really cool. And it's the kind of stuff you don't see often in games where it's beyond just the visuals. It's more about how those visuals interact with the world. Yeah, I think the fluid looks really cool. And I mean, I've been playing through Death Stranding just recently for uh, an upcoming piece oh, right. should be on the on the iPhone. And it is reminiscent. You, you are reminded a little bit of the stuff with the tar, but here it does look quite a bit better. Um, and there's some like interesting stuff, like there's some pre-calculated destruction in the trailer that I thought looked really good as well. Um, just in terms of the technique, so I did scan through the trailer looking for evidence, telltale tell, tell, tell signs of a couple things. So the reflections do seem to be screen space reflections. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at 340, Sam is running across, and there don't seem to be occlusion issues. But then at 439, in that kind of like that boardroom area, if you look at the, the standalone trailer, um, it almost looks like Sam has a bit of a screen space reflection cur- skirt to him, where the occluded details like a this dark space behind him. And then at 502, there are obvious SSR occlusion issues at the sides of the frame. That's that's one detail um, that, that indicate they're probably screen space reflections. And the shadows, they do look very pristine and very clean throughout, but I did see some shadow aliasing at 655 on the enemy's shoulder a little bit, and then at 140, there appears to be some shadow aliasing along Sam's back. So that would sort of indicate some kind of rasterized technique. Although in some scenes I did note like a little bit, almost what looked like a little bit of contact hardening around the shadows. So maybe there's a mix of different things in there that they're doing. Um, and then I also noticed it at 309, when the pod bay door is open, I'm not sure if you noticed this, John, but there's light that's being reflected off of the pod bay door as it opens. And it really does fill that space with reflected light. 
And it does look yes. like some kind of potentially real-time or ray-traced global illumination technique. That's what really screamed out to me. And then also the lighting throughout the trailer is very consistent looking. And at 438 as well, when the lights are coming on, it does remind me a lot of what I would expect from a title with ray-traced global illumination. So I am wondering if maybe that's part of the feature set of current generation Decima, as you put it, if that's part of the fundamental feature set that we're going to see in presumably the next Horizon game and this title, because the lighting presentation really did remind me of what I typically see and expect from a title with a ray-traced uh, global illumination technique. Absolutely. And I think that pod bay door that slowly opens and the light sort of spills into the room. We've not seen any lighting like that in a Decima title before. The indirectly lit or directly lit areas when they combine like this, like there is some pretty impressive indirect lighting in Horizon Forbidden West that's pre-calculated, but it's not dynamic in this way. And this is exactly the kind of scene where you could show it off. It has a very soft uh, fall off of like sort of the the ambient shadowing around the edges of that door off to the left and right. And just the way the, the light naturally spills in. It's either a very, very accomplished and impressive rasterized solution, or maybe they are actually leveraging ray traced global illumination. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Decima's engineering work has continued. Uh, it would make sense to invest in technologies like this. And given that we're seeing RT like GI, it, it kind of jives the fact that we're not seeing reflections or shadows or anything like that with ray tracing, because layering on too many of those effects would be likely prohibitively expensive, shall we say. Okay. Yeah. I think RT GI would be a absolutely brilliant upgrade to the existing Decima engine. Um, it just makes sense with that kind of game. Right. And, um, the sort of trade-offs that you get with the existing sort of uh, solutions we have, you know, there's this kind of, um, how can you describe it? There's an accumulation effect on RTGI. It wouldn't be that impactful on this type of game, whereas you look at something like Marvel Spider-Man, it would be a lot more difficult to integrate without looking a bit poor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And um, just, you know, what could I say? Uh, it, it just seemed like a maximum upgrade in just about every regard. Character rendering again, next level. Um, obviously, the the amount of variety that we saw in the environments was, was pretty stellar. Lighting just superb uh, i don't really know i mean you can heap on the superlatives on this but this is the first uh sort of um proper sort of current gen uh thing that we've seen from kojima and it's it's just looking brilliant what can i say um not sure what's going on with those hands <laughs> on fragile's face oh yeah yeah there's a lot of I weird mean, stuff in here i mean yeah, this exactly. this is the thing that i kind of enjoy about i mean i'm not a kojima fan at all i really don't like his sort of narrative uh, stylings. (laughs) But there's a lot of weird stuff in here. And um, this is the thing that I kind of like about this presentation. First of all, it wasn't rushed. They basically just said to Kojima, by the look of it, here's 10 minutes, (laughs) do whatever you like with it. Secondly, Kojima himself edits the trailers, right? Um, And I believe... As far as I know, yeah. I think at the end of this one, it says edited by Hideo Kojima, which kind of suggests that that refers to the trailer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, this is basically a creator in complete control of the vision, teasing what he wants to be teased at this point. And um, you can certainly say that it's highly intriguing and visually astonishing. And um, I think I read somewhere that we're looking at a 2025 time release said, yeah. window. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which in the trailer. disappointing, but, you know, basically these things take time, right? <laughs> 
I mean, I would say that's sooner than I expected, to be honest. That's a pretty good thing. Uh, what I'm more curious about is, like, presumably, if the PS5 Professional is indeed real, uh, what that will mean. Because this trailer is presented at 30 frames per second. Yeah. And while that was true of Horizon Forbidden West as well, it did end up with a performance mode. I'll be curious to see if they're able to do 60 FPS on the original PS5. Or if that's going to be something where like they can do a PS5 Pro mode at 60 as as well, perhaps. Hmm. I don't know though. And this, so games like this, like really these stupidly good looking games. uh, This also applies to something like Hellblade Two, where these are slow games. They are not designed to be like action packed, ultra responsive experiences. And I think as a result, especially with both of their cinematic aspirations. I think 30 frames per second is actually just fine and it looks good actually I would argue but it is nice it would be nice to have the option for 60. Right. So, so do you think conceivably 60 frames per second could be a professional bonus as I, it were? I mean it seems like it could be uh I I mean I would genuinely be surprised if they tried to hit 60 with these visuals on a regular PS5. Mm. I mean Kojima likes 60 frames per second games. I think the, the one thing that came out when we talked to them for Death Stranding on PC, uh, it, it, we got this astonishing quote where um, uh, we were told by that Kojima was actually targeting 60 on the original Death Stranding, but just couldn't do it on the PlayStation 4. So, Interesting. yeah, that would kind of make sense for a PS5 Pro to actually have a 60 mode. But, you know, who knows? I mean, um, what Decima achieved on the standard PlayStation 5 in Horizons performance yeah. mode is, is, is quite special, I think. Yeah. Um, anything more to talk specifically about this? Because we did have that extra bonus chat at the end um, where oh, right. his new were game revealed? was revealed. Yeah, well, if you... I assume it's probably still in the conceptual stages. Yeah. But it basically, to me, knowing how long games take to make and knowing Kojima's age, uh, I'm to me, it feels like he just announced like his final project ever. Really? Right? Like, well, he did say it was the culmination of 40 years work, didn't he? What I mean is like, it's probably going to take a long time to create and it's probably something that will extend beyond. Maybe he'll even work on like a sequel or two for it. But I feel like he's heading in the direction of whatever that IP is, is going to be sort of like everything that his career, like the culmination of his career, as he says, will finalize there. And then I suspect after that, we'll, we might see him retire. I don't know. Hmm, interesting. Uh, I, you know, I mean, that seems plausible to me at this point. Well, and that's actually kind of a, that's the weird, oh man, modern game development with the amount of time, the number of years it takes to make stuff. You start to think about games in terms of, well, this creator has only X number of games left in them until they retire, right? And for us as well, like game releases used to come fast and furious and now they take five and six years a piece, right? So like we're starting to, we're all running out of time. And like the medium, it's not even, it's, it's more about will we actually, what will we be able to experience while we're still alive at this point is I've been thinking about that stuff lately. Like we're just careening towards this point where games are taking so long, like not the most important thing in life, but it's something you enjoy. And it's like, 
I'm actually thinking about the end here. Like, what is wow. going to be the last I, game I no that we idea. see developed and released? I had no idea that this would bring on an <laughs> existential crisis for you, John. It does. <laughs> when you, the fact that he mentioned the way he phrased that, like, is like the combination of everything. And you just consider a lot of these developers, and obviously these teams can live on without these guys, right? They're, obviously, he plays a big role in it, but. I think there's more to it than that. There's a whole team driving it, but a lot of the big names that we know in games, they're not getting younger. Well, it does and, seem that he's going back to the beginning, right? And um, yeah, uh, well, yeah, the, yeah, the espionage, Metal Gear. yeah, the espionage genre. Uh, yeah. Thoughts on this one, Oliver? It sounds a lot like Metal Gear without the Metal Gear IP <laughs> to me, and maybe that's yeah, that's a reflection of where he wants to go with the project. Basically, just do something that obviously he's extremely well known for, but in a in a context that he can build a new story out and maybe do something interesting with it. And it's also like you get the nice transmedia elements there, which is a classic Kojima thing. Like maybe it's more of a film than a game. And we'll yeah, the transmedia that, stuff, right? Yeah, that's but, the way yeah, I felt I mean, about Metal Gear Solid Two. To yeah, be honest, he, but. Uh, rich <laughs> but 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 i would expect this time probably he'll throw in like some big actors so yeah i mean i think it's interesting he's also 60 years old uh so he is he's getting on a bit and this might be you know i think this might be like death stranding 2 then move on to this new project maybe it sounds kind of like from the way they framed it that maybe death stranding 2 is the final I, title in i this suspect series. it will be um, what do you make of the then, kind of final pan that yeah and then move this. On to this is it scient there was no actual pronunciation given. So, and then the Columbia Studios thing as well. I mean, there is the sense that maybe they were very, very enigmatic in the in the interview piece where you know, um, they were basically talking about the game in very, very uh, weird terms. And, you know, it was a lot of sort of uh, watch this space style stylings to it but yeah i mean we got this pan back to columbia studios there, there did seem to be this kind of sense that you know okay sony is basically going to be throwing all of its sort of um various media ips at kojima to play with here which i find quite interesting it's probably what he's always wanted <laughs> yes i think so <laughs> okay so another title we saw in the state of play january 2024 was stellar blade now we've had a look at this game before um but we had an, another extended look at it this time and um i think from a technical perspective it was looking really really impressive uh, oliver do you want to take point on this one yeah, I mean, I thought that it looked really, really good. From a rendering perspective, it's UE4, yeah. and you can pretty much tell from the first frame <laughs> that it is UE4. Just in the way that the bloom looks and the post-processing, and, you know, it just has a very UE4 look to it. Um, I think the character rendering looks really good. It's sort of a semi-stylized semi look to it. The animations, I think, look terrific. It actually reminds me a lot of Near Automata, in terms of sort of a kind of open worldish environment, certainly the style of the characters, the kinds of actions and animations, also a little bit of Bayonetta, so it's a little bit of a platinum game style title, I would say in that respect. It clearly is running at 60 frames per second. That's all. That's all strong stuff, and it is a PS5 exclusive. But you know, you do see some screen space artifacts and reflections. You see some specular aliasing. Um, not a whole lot of evidence of like current gen rendering techniques, but it is a really good looking UE4 title, mm -hmm. I think, from yeah. what we've seen so far. Yeah, I agree. I, I really love the look of this game. I think it's very clearly inspired by stuff like Nier Automata, mm -hmm. but uh, with more accomplished technology behind it, given that Nier is kind of a rough looking game, I would say. 
there's there's a lot of variety in these shots as well and like the basic setting of so i get the impression that it's kind of this uh it's almost like the kowloon walled city but built as like a spire in this giant like canyon environment and then the surrounding areas which i found like really compelling as like a place to explore and visit and i really like these types of ruined environments and then on top of that the actual combat and stuff looks very promising uh, we'll have to wait and see if they can actually pull it off because that is, that's not easy to get right. And I think, I'm not sure if this studio is actually proven, but given that it is a Sony published game, I'd imagine they've provided additional resources and investment into helping these guys polish it up. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought uh, it was so spectacular I'm- in many ways. And yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying about it being sort of, you know, classic <laughs> Unreal Engine 4 feature set. But I think this is a really great example of how when you have really talented artists, uh, you know, really pouring their their abilities into this, you, you get something that's greater than the sum of its parts, I think. You know, character mm. rendering looked great. The, the sheer density that we had on offer in some of those scenes just looked superb. Um, what could I say? I was kind of blown away by it in, in many ways. And um, we saw a lot more of the game this time than we did last time around. I, it is targeting 60... I think there were some drops in there. Oh, there's possibly. a lot of drops, yeah. actually, I would say. But it seemed, it's very to be, inconsistent. it seemed to be improved yeah. over what we saw in the initial showing, yep. at least, Big possibly, time. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really sort of excited by what we're seeing here and um, can't wait to see more. Now, this one is coming out not too far along from now, right? Um, isn't it April, that's, I believe? Yeah, that's actually the only bummer is that I'm happy that it's yep. close, but it's going to hit when I'm uh, visiting the U.S., so I'll be on vacation. I really wanted to cover this too, but it looks like uh, Oliver, I'm going to need your help again. The, hand the baton over. <laughs> the baton is in your hands. <laughs> I do uh, sort of like the way that a global launch for a major title is uh, it's a bit of a bummer because you're on holiday. You know, it, They should just wait until you're back. <laughs> wow, when you put it that way, I mean, that sort of makes this job sound pretty cool, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I wish I, wish I could do this work. <laughs> But I'm on I'm on vacation. Gosh darn it! <laughs> but hey, at least I can buy the uh, the the U.S. Um, the American PS5 physical copy of it with right. the ESRB logo rather than the freaking uh, USK badge of shame. Oh, of course, uh, which we have here in Germany. Brexit has closed <laughs> the avenue of actually having decent looking box art available. To yeah, I mean, what I've actually been doing, I've started buying most of my games just from Amazon Japan because with the way the yen is and everything, it's actually often cheaper to just import it. And, you know, I'd I'd rather have that version over the German USK version. And if that fails, then I'll just get it from like France. Uh, I try everything to avoid buying USK versions of games because I don't, I don't like them on my shelf. Just, just to, to, for people that don't know, the USK is like the, uh, the rating system used by Germany, right? It's got this gigantic classification Dude, thing. it's so, oh my God, it's so big. Like, it's so big that it actually offsets logos and art design on, like, Switch cases often. Like, they have to push the logo over to the right because it doesn't fit. And you should have seen it at the tail end of the Vita days because, you know, the Vita cases are pretty small, right? <laughs> and that USK badge, they do not allow it to decrease in size. So basically, like, one-third of the cover is USK badge, and then they kind of fit the art around it. So uh. it's bad stuff. <laughs> Any final thoughts on Stellar Blade? before we move on 
good. I looking more at the video. I love the hair sim on the character as she's like flipping around doing all these actions. Like her hair looks really, really well done. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's these long strands and it's not, it's, it's whipping and moving all individual looking strands and like sort of colliding with her body in a way that doesn't look janky. Uh, and I really appreciate that kind of stuff. And I think it looks cool in motion. And then last but not least, it has a really good logo. I'm just going to say it at that logo at the end, like the way it's sort of sh the sparkly blue powder effect. And then the, I think I appreciate a good logo and that's a, a good logo. <laughs> a little eighties, but I get what you're saying. Uh, yeah, it's, it's cool. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Another game that caught our attention at uh, state of play 2024 had to be dragon's dogma two from Capcom. Um, obviously we're looking at an evolution of the RE engine here. It's doing things. Well, this is the great thing about RE, right? Which is that um, as new games come along that sort of um, push boundaries in different genres, RE has to evolve to accommodate that. And we're seeing that again here with uh, Dragon's Dogma 2 and um, it looks absolutely terrific. Um, Oliver, your thoughts, please. Yeah, I thought it looks fantastic. Like you said, it is Basically, I mean, the first real proper current gen exercise of the RE engine, I'd have to imagine, in terms of the feature set, I think it, it does look quite a bit better than other RE engine titles, which have thus far been cross-gen titles to my to my recollection. Um, so they've been a bit more mm. restrained. And this looks really good. It is at 30 FPS, which I, I hope they do have a high frame rate mode in there mm. because of the style of game this is. But outside of that, I mean, I think it Do you think terrific. it's 30 or unlocked? It's unlocked, oh. and I can tell from this trailer. And I, so I played an hour of this game at TGS, and that was feedback I gave to them, not that they would necessarily be able to... I don't know how, how much... Basically, I think this is a game that should have an optional frame rate cap. Right. Uh, because the way it played then and the way it looks in this trailer, the frame rate's kind of all over the place, where it's anywhere from, like, the 20s up to 60. And that sucks. It doesn't... It does not feel good. Uh and it lacks consistency. VRR might help some, especially on Xbox. Right. right? And mm -hmm. is this coming to PC? This is coming to yeah. PC, right? You'd expect so. Yeah, so PC would probably be fine, but that that's my only real complaint with everything that they've shown is that the frame rate is just all over the place. And at the same time, one could argue that that's part of the Dragon's Dogma experience. <laughs> so it's not a desirable know. part though, is it? No, but maybe it's a throwback. Like, remember this guys, remember the frame rate? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, Oliver, you were in the middle of your obs observations there. Yeah. I mean, scrolling through this trailer, it is like, it is more variable. It just looked like 30 to me because it is like hovering around roughly that point. But yeah, if, if this is unlocked, then that's not a great sign. And Capcom has a bit of a history with unlocked frame rates in games. I think even with VRR, this wouldn't be that great. It, it, it is quite a variable experience down and, and getting to certain lows that you don't really want to see in a title. So yeah, I mm -hmm. hope they do fix that or at least cap it um, because on consoles... Optional. Yeah, yeah, on consoles, I, I don't think that would make for too great of an experience. So anything from an engine perspective, I mean, obviously the, the sort of wide open scope of it is, uh, is is pretty impressive. I mean, you know, what could I say? Character design, monster design, effects work. It, it, you know, RE is just brilliant. It just seems to be getting better and better. 
Yes, so I, I agree, Rich. It is improving with each game. But the thing that really separates Dragon's Dogma 2, I think, from other RE engine games, and games in general, is the sort of the physicality of the battles. The creatures that you fight are often large, and we've seen plenty of large creatures in games before, right? It's not a, it's not an uncommon thing, but I feel like in general, it's like they're just an object that's animated and they're placed inside of this map and they have minimal impact on the environment around it. And the, the player's interaction with it usually amounts to doing swing animations and some basic sort of collision occasionally. And it just... It, and that works well from a gameplay perspective, but this is a game that sort of the enemies very directly interact with the world. They break down trees, you know, crumble buildings. You can climb on the enemies, mantle them. Uh, when you see there's like a, a griffin or some kind of creature that flies over the village at one point in the trailer here that takes down buildings with it. And it really feels physicalized in a way that reminds me actually of something like uh I guess the last guardian or, or uh, shadow of the Colossus kind of stuff, but with even more granularity, of course, or that, uh, that scene where there's like a large tux tusk creature mm-hmm. swinging sort of a club in the middle of the forest. And you sort of see all the trees sort of bend and sway as he does it. I think it's the physicality of these interactions that really separate it from other action games. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you're so, saying. And that's uh, I think that's that's really difficult to pull off, having multiple super detailed, well animated models interacting with one another in that way. That's that's hard to implement, mm-hmm. and not something we often see. So, uh, yeah, it looks fantastic. Another game which kind of came out of the blue in this particular state of play was uh, the arrival, the debut of uh, Sonic X Shadow Generations. Now I'm going to have to obviously defer to our resident Sonic expert here, John. <laughs> John. <laughs> is that um, a title I should... Yeah, I'll, I'll accept the title. Resident Sonic expert, that would be... Uh, that could go on your lower third. Exactly. <laughs> um, that so could. You seemed quite excited by this. I thought Shadow was a persona non grata in the Sonic community. Uh, there's a subset of the community that And is there, is there like some sort of uh, scrappy-doo rendition of Sonic in there as well? Sonic Junior. What's going on? Oh, are you... Okay, you're not familiar with Sonic Generations. I'm not. So the... The original conceit, the original Sonic Generations, the idea was an attempt by Sonic Team to create a fusion of modern 3D Sonic, which at the time was the boost Sonic style of gameplay with uh, side-scrolling Sonic. Right. So the, the small Sonic is designed to look more like the original artwork from the Mega Drive games, but Ren realized in 3D and his stages are all played exclusively as side-scrolling stages. Oh, okay. Uh, where the larger Sonic, they play like full 3D boost sonic games and but they interact. i have issues yeah they do so like they you do know, actually like it's Spider-Man like some sort of weird like yeah it's like some kind of weird time warp thing that happens and they all end up in this strange like white world between levels it's uh the story is whatever but the game itself is actually a lot of fun it's still a lot of fun today and it was sort of this revisiting greatest hits of zones from Sonic's past, but all rebuilt and made. I mean, they're completely new levels. They're just based on themes that existed. Uh, but it was made for PS3 and Xbox 360. Yeah. Uh, it did get backwards compatibility on Xbox Series X, so mm-hmm. Xbox in general. And it's awesome on there because it did update it to run at 60 frames per second at 4K. 
but it's still fundamentally a 360 game and all the UI stuff looks terrible because it's designed yeah. for 720p. And, you know, it comes with the typical caveats of doing that backwards compatible stuff. So having a native version of Sonic Generations alone is nice, but it seems they've gone the extra mile and have created a ton of new content with Shadow. So it seems like the game itself has been expanded. Right. I don't know how much content there will be, whether this is like the equivalent of a small DLC or whether they've made like a mini sequel to the game, but with Shadow, because the stuff they showed with Shadow is not stuff that's normally in Generations. Okay, intriguing. So it's more of that game. Okay. And what's interesting is that, I mean, that was made on the Hedgehog engine circa 2011, and that engine has evolved. Obviously, they did Forces and then... uh the the recent one i guess Frontier. from 2022 yeah frontiers mm-hmm. and those all used more advanced versions of the hedgehog engine i'm curious if they've updated it for that it's been confirmed that this is new footage because they show like a section in the green hill zone at the beginning where the grass is lit incorrectly one might argue compared to the original <laughs> it's like a new minor rendering bug and the appearance of that bug that doesn't exist in any version of Sonic Generation suggests that this, yes, this is indeed actual new footage. Okay. Uh, which it's kind of a fun way to figure that out, but hey, there it is. It's a bit random. <laughs> so wow. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And mm-hmm. one thing, I I would love it if they could get it up to 120 frames per second. I think they could in terms of demands, but Hedgehog Engine games always seem to be capped at 30 Sorry, at 60, not right. 30, 60. They're capped at 60. Like, if you do front Sonic Frontiers on the PC, for instance, and all the other ones, they're all limited to 60 max, and mods to unlock it cause physics issues and other stuff like that, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, any thoughts on this one, Oliver? No, not too many. I'm not very familiar with the original title, but this does look interesting. It's okay. <laughs> it does look mm-hmm. interesting. Well, thank you, John, for forgiving me. Uh, no, I, I think this looks cool. I mean, shadows in there. I have no idea what that means in this context, but I think it's I think it's it's cool that someone, at least one person, is a, is a big fan of this announcement. Uh, what is the shadow thing? Why is there con- uh, controversy over Shadow John? Just for those who aren't Wait, con- in controversy. Well, you know, people don't like him for some reason. I'm, I'm curious as to. Uh, what, so what he was introduced is. in Sonic Adventure Two on the Dreamcast. Yeah. Sort of. Uh, uh, a counter to Sonic. He was part of the the villain side, but he's not actually a villain, and he's been in many, many games since then, and it's, he's largely considered part of the 3D Sonic era canon, so uh, I think fans that are more into the older games are less uh, predisposed to enjoy his presence. Uh, I don't mind him, he's fine. Okay. <laughs> I, have, I have nothing to really say on that. The Sonic <laughs> fandom, though, don't 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 google it don't go and just trust me on this to stay just enjoy the games and pretend that all the other stuff around it is not happening the only thing you should pay attention to is the sonic amateur games expo <laughs> mm-hmm. and the stuff born out of that that's good everything else though <laughs> okay fair enough I'll, I'll bear that in mind uh, uh, okay let's move on to the next game um so yeah well this one's interesting ken levine is back um, there was a period of time where he just seemed to disappear from view, started a new studio, and um, initially the idea was to concentrate on smaller games that weren't Bioshock. We're getting our first look at what he has come up with many years on. It's called Judas, and um, uh, it is, would be perhaps unkind to say that it's very reminiscent of Bioshock, though. Um, what do you think about that, John? 
Uh, yeah, it does look. It looks like Bioshock. Right. I was initially hoping that it was going to be a sequel to Cyber Judas, which uh, I don't know if you guys have played Cyber Judas. If not, I recommend checking it out. Okay. But um, this does like the very first thing you see after the company logo is from the creator of Bioshock. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, it looks like the aesthetic kind of built from Bioshock Infinite. Mm-hmm. With those sort of brighter colors rather than the deeper hues of Rapture. Uh, but it's hard to say that much more beyond that, just that the gameplay itself is extremely reminiscent of that sort of game. Yeah. And I guess the question is, though, is so I've seen some people kind of dunking on that. And I actually have a lot of interest in this because I did think that those Bioshock games did a lot of interesting things and I did enjoy them. I think Bioshock Infinite was a letdown because even though conceptually it was neat, that it really strayed too far from the uh, immersive sim roots and was kind of more of a simplistic shooter with only some very slight resemblance to the games from which Bioshock was born. And Bioshock itself was sort of a simplified take on System Shock 2, which he had also worked on, Yeah. Uh, right? So I'm hoping that this at least gets back to perhaps the more hardcore variety of immersive sim if you want to call it that mm-hmm. sounds a little weird to say that but basically something more in line with prey 2017 if, <laughs> right. I, if i may say so which was a really well done one of those games i would say mm-hmm. uh but from this trailer it's hard to tell much i think the game looks visually fine I think it looks terrific. I mean, the like, stylization in it is yeah. The stylization. I guess it's hard to it's hard to gather that much from it because there's not that much gameplay in there. But I do think obviously the rendering and such is a gigantic step up from Bioshock Infinite. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of modern stuff in there. It's not doing anything necessarily new, but it is. Uh, it looks cool, mm-hmm. and the effects and everything is really well animated. Uh, there's that one thing where they stick the needles into your character's hands, and they sort of that's a very gross effect. I don't know if you saw <laughs> yeah. that. But I that makes me uncomfortable. So <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think? Does, does this look it's like something you'd play? Interested in the visual design? I mean, I, I agree that it but, looks like an incredible amount, like Bioshock. Even even down to the rendering, like you have that same stylization of the character models. It's very distinctive with the yep, yep, yep. really exaggerated proportions on a per character basis. There are some really cool effects, though. I like the kind of digitizing effect at uh, about 1 minute 25 seconds which kind of shows you the polygonal mesh of the enemies I think that's cool and then also the needle thing that John pointed out where it's almost like printing flesh along the character's hand that's interesting it's horrific I'm not seeing this this is the current gen on the game I'm not seeing personally any really serious evidence that we're seeing um, any particularly current gen features here but it does look very good it looks very clean it's very UE4 but um kind of a recurring theme <laughs> but i think it looks i think it looks <laughs> yeah. good for 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 what it is you know not every game needs to push the state of the art and this looks perfectly yep, great yep. for for what it is trailer was 32 by the way i noticed yeah uh which was interesting okay that that may not mean anything but it's also worth pointing out that it is 30 frames per second thus far <laughs> okay. okay let's move on uh metro awakening next this was a really interesting addition to the lineup in the state of play 2024 um, because obviously, while there has been some activity with PlayStation VR 2, there is the sense that the momentum has been kind of dropping off. And um, we kind of need something like this. 
John, I'm going to come to you again. This is, you know, a VR game. You're deeply invested in VR now. This is a multi-platform VR experience, as far as I'm aware, PC, PSVR 2 and uh, Quest. Um, it's been put, put together by the creators of Arizona Sunshine, not 4A games, even though 4A do have their own experiences with um, with VR. Um, obviously a very short failure, but, you know, it's looking promising, right? Yeah, so as you said, this is by Vertigo Games, which has experience with the Arizona Sunshine games, which are pretty good, I would say. Yeah. But those were also targeting somewhat lower spec machines. Uh, whereas this, looking at what we're seeing in this trailer, this does seem to be dramatically more visually impressive than anything they've done in the past. Mm -hmm. and sort of in line with what you'd expect from Metro. It seems to be in development for PSVR 2 and PC. There's a Steam page. Mm -hmm. I suspect that there won't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'd imagine that there's not going to be a native Quest version. Okay. And if there is, then I'd be super impressed and also wonder, would that mean Quest 3 only? Uh, because there's just enough going on here where I think that might be too tall of an order. We'll see. Yeah. It, but either way, I actually think... Yeah, go ahead. Oliver. It is actually confirmed for Quest 2, 3, and Quest Pro. What? Yeah. <laughs> You're doing this for Quest? Yeah. Oh, man. That's... All right, then. I. That's impressive. I will... I... We'll see if... I mean, to be fair, I guess Arizona Sunshine 2 had a fair amount of stuff cut down to run on quests, but it's also a very bright game where this is more like light and shadow. So mm -hmm. I'll be curious to see how they uh, modify it to work on those hard hardware platforms. But it, I, I guess it makes sense in terms of the audience, right? There's a lot of people on the quest. Yeah. Uh, but this looks like something I might actually play on the quest three wi uh, wirelessly to the PC though. Uh, funny enough, since we're talking about PSVR two, <laughs> Mm -hmm. But I actually think Metro as a game, the concept, what they're showing here is perfect for VR. These sort of tight spaces work super well. I think better than large open spaces, actually, because when you have stuff in close proximity to you, your eyes uh, are more convinced by the scale. Yeah. Moving through this darkness, uh, the the weapons handling and everything looks really nice. And it seems to be following the Half-Life Alex model, which I'm always a fan of. Uh, it might make sense to have some of the weapons be a little janky Metro style where you kind of yeah. got to fiddle with it to unjam it. So I'll be curious to see if they play with that stuff. But um, I guess the big question I have though is, a, is the engine it's running on now because I believe their prior games were Unity based? Wow. Maybe? Mm -hmm. I think so. I, I kind of need to double check that actually. But uh yeah yeah okay so based on what i'm seeing here it does seem like the arizona sunshine games were both unity based yeah uh this stuff here in in this trailer to me looks beyond what we typically see from unity if they're able to do this in vr with unity then i would say this is shaping yeah. up to be one of the most impressive things we've ever seen i can unity. i can spoil this one as well john if you want me to <laughs> Is it, is it unity it's, i'm looking at this playstation store page and it says powered by unreal engine Makes sense. Yeah. So they they dropped. Yeah. Okay. I was <laughs> gonna say if this was actually Unity, I was gonna be like, man, these guys—they just set a new bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they they switched to Unreal, just like everybody else yeah. in the world. <laughs> I guess so. Anything to add to that, Oliver? No, I think this looks really good. It looks a lot like the content, frankly, that I sort of expected to have at the PSVR two launch outside of the Horizon game. Like, yeah. Kind of interesting. Um. Kind of kind of double a AA or triple a ish experience driven 
titles that are a little bit more cinematic and have some interesting aspects to them. This, like you said, it looks a little bit like Half-Life Alex in terms of the way they're handling the the uh, the VRness of it. I don't know what the right term is to use there. But it does look good. I'm interested in it. I personally have not used my PSVR 2 in quite a while. <laughs> so I'd love to bust it out for this title. But um, yeah, it looks okay. certainly more appealing than the other PSVR 2 game that we saw. I would say, and I, I hope to see more uh, of this, yeah, that thing. More of these kinds of games. What was it called? I don't it even. It was know. a legendary, legendary tales. tales. Yeah, yes. that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I so funny about that when I first saw that being shown, I was like, "Wow, this looks like kind of like it was inspired with his original PlayStation tech demos of Kingsfield One." Right. You know, that's that's the feeling I got, where it's like lots of skeletons and punching these dudes through tables and such mm-hmm. uh but I, I i have no idea i appreciate though how it has the subtitle action role-playing game on at the yeah. top card there. Yeah. just to legendary tales action role-playing game just to get that out in the open still waiting for that kingsfield df retro john know you're a busy man hashtag just oh, say man i should i should do that yeah <laughs> one of these days one of these days Okay, let's move on. Um, Rise of the Ronin, this caught our eye. Um, Team Ninja are back. A very different game to what they've done in the past, seemingly. Um, Oliver, your thoughts on this one? It's been quite contentious, I think, amongst the the audience. I think people are a little bit hung up on the visuals. And I think that from my perspective, if you know Team Ninja, it won't be that surprising or that uh, upsetting at all. Because... (laughs) It does look a lot like their Katana Engine games. It looks a lot like Wo Long. It looks a little bit like um, what we saw from the infamous Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin. Okay. And I think this is their first current gen-only title. I'm not seeing a whole lot of evidence of visual improvement relative to those earlier games, especially in pain points like GI and character running, especially in the phases. Mm-hmm. But it is an open world title, which is new for them. Unfortunately, this isn't also, also it doesn't seem to be running at a consistent frame rate. Yeah. And I do worry that could be in the in the, in the that, final release as well. That's how you can tell it's current gen only. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, some of the other titles do suffer from technical issues even on current generation hardware. So I'm worried about that. But the combat does look good. There's some cool stuff as well. Like, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, there's some cool stuff, I would say. Like, there's some snow deformation. And there's the, the grass reacts to an explosion about 1 minute uh, 59 seconds in. But the animation isn't totally convincing there the grass kind of just goes haywire <laughs> from the explosion <laughs> so yeah i think if you know team ninja's work this will not come as a big surprise but if you aren't super familiar with their work then it might be a bit disappointing but i think the game itself will probably be quite good based on their pedigree okay uh, anything to add to that john i don't know what I to think... make of this to be honest yeah I, I think oliver you're spot on uh this is probably going to be an excellent game their recent titles they're extremely well made in terms of core gameplay mechanics and based on what we're seeing in the combat here that looks to be continuing so i have zero doubts about that but like you said yeah it has a lot of the same trademark uh issues that you'd expect from a team ninja game at this point visually speaking i would argue that it's less visually striking than ghosts of tsushima Mm, in many ways Uh, which uh yeah but hey uh we'll see i mean it's uh, it's cool that they're making this i guess and i'll be curious to see how it's received uh but yeah beyond that not too much to say um let's move on until dawn now this has been a rumor that's been circulating for some time now that the uh, game would get 
uh, a revamp for PlayStation 5 and PC, and lo and behold, it has come to pass. Uh, what's curious about this is that the original was created using uh, Guerrilla Games' Decima engine, had extremely variable performance on PlayStation 4, which was <laughs> essentially cleaned mm -hmm. up on back and power yeah. under PlayStation 5, uh, which is fantastic. But now we're getting an actual PlayStation 5 version, and we seem to be migrating from one engine to another, which is interesting, right, Oliver? Yeah, I mean, apparently they're using UE5 for this one, and it, it just it seems odd to me because you'd assume that a Decima title would be able to be ported to PS5 and PC systems without an enormous deal of difficulty. It also doesn't need a whole lot to work really well visually. It looked really superb on PS4 systems. I think high-res rendering, 60 FPS, it could look really good even without substantial upgrades. Uh, visually, the trailer did look excellent. It's just short snippets, and I'm not sure how it compares to Until Dawn's original incarnation. I need a side-by-side -side for that. Yeah. But it does It does look ex does look very, very good, for sure, in this showing. So it'll be, it'll be curious to see how the final version pans out. Mm -hmm. um, John, what do you think about this? I mean, um, does it look substantially different to the original? Actually, I would say I'm fairly confident that what this is is sort of a, a setup for a sequel. I'm oh. going to say it. I, I suspect that Sony want to revive Until Dawn uh, and to make sure that people understand where the series comes from. They've decided to sort of recreate, remaster, whatever you want to call it. I guess it's, it's kind of a remake in many ways since mm. they've switched engines and it's all new rendering features. And that seems to be what they're doing. So I suspect that'll come out, this will come out this year. And then in the next year or two, we'll probably have an Until Dawn 2 by a different team. Maybe the same guys that have been doing the Dark Pictures stuff. Uh, they did the Quarry as well, which was actually rather good, I would say. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. All that stuff will be interesting to see. As far as the visuals, though, I mean, it does look noticeably better. You can see there's more advanced rendering going on, but I kind of agree that the original still looks good enough, <laughs> right? Like, it's just, like, this, these improvements are certainly welcome, but it's just strange to me that this does not feel like a game that really needs this kind of upgrade. Mm, okay. Just given, given the quality of what was already achieved on PS4. Okay, if they are effectively relaunching the franchise, this does kind of make sense, though, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. that's, that's that's why I'm like, okay, it makes sense. There is no confirmation on this, by the way. It's just my best guess is that this would be the reason to do this. It's because they want to relaunch the franchise. Yeah. Uh, I guess they, there was technically an Until Dawn sequel, kind of, with the Rush of Blood VR shooting yeah. game, but mm -hmm. that's that was so far removed. I guess my biggest question, though, is if they do an Until Dawn 2, are they going back to that team that I just mentioned with the Dark Pictures? Because they've continued to make Until Dawn-like games, but with yes. less production value, I would say. <laughs> so maybe Sony's finally decided, you know what, let's go back to these guys and ask them to uh, revive the, the franchise with mm -hmm. a sequel. So okay. we'll see. Uh, there's no specific release date that I'm aware of, just 2024. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. This is also like tying into a little bit of transmedia stuff because they're doing an Until Dawn movie, apparently, I read a couple days ago. Right. Okay. So that could be part of it as well. Dang, I didn't realize it was such a big franchise. Yeah, I didn't really. Apparently so. You know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, obviously, we'll be chasing up on that in due course, uh, but let's move on. Uh, final 
sort of thing we want to talk about with this particular state of play was the return of Silent Hill. We actually got two entries here. Silent Hill, the short message, which is um, out now. It's uh, a, a very small or relatively small, rather, free-to-play game uh, created by Hexadrive, which we'll talk about in a minute, yeah. in a minute uh, John. And secondly, we saw Silent Hill 2, uh, the, the new remake, which um, I think that that was a very sort of uh, controversial showing, certainly vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis the stuff that we've seen already. Um, let's talk about the short message first of all, uh, John. We've not had the chance to play it yet. I mean, I literally it booted it up this morning just to take a very, very quick look at it. And I noticed the Hexadrive logo pop up, which <laughs> uh, I wasn't expecting. It wasn't in the trailer, but this is potentially really awesome stuff because Hexadrive is like possibly one of the most interesting developers uh, out there with uh, some interesting history behind them. Yeah, they seem to be kind of rising stars for a while. Uh, and in fact, I have a connection with them because they're, they were the ones contracted out to essentially fix the broken remaster of Zone of the Enders 2 yes. on PS3, where Konami took it away from high voltage software and had Hexadrive rebuild it completely from scratch. And they did a significantly better job. Uh, yes. And that was the second thing ever that I covered on digital foundry. <laughs> uh, so, and then they also went on to do things like the Okami HD remaster on PS3. Right. Okay. Uh -huh. It's very high res rendering. Uh, it was 1080p, but it used four X MSAA. Yeah. Uh, it was not 4k like some <laughs> things had suggested, but uh, and I think they did the EX Troopers games, if I recall, at least the PS3 one. I was, I don't know. Are you guys familiar with EX Troopers? No, no. Very <laughs> underrated. It was, it was a, an anime style spinoff of the Lost Planet games. Oh, interesting. And it was very beautiful looking and really, really cool. And it was probably my favorite Lost Planet game in the end. But it's rather unusual. Uh, and I think Hexadrive made that. But I haven't heard a lot from them recently. I'm sure they've been up to stuff. But yeah, I, 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 was, I too was surprised to see them pop up here. And I guess based on what they did with Zone of the Enders, they at least already had some sort of relationship forged with Konami. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, did they develop this thing entirely themselves or were they simply the tech team behind it? It's unclear at the moment. Uh, to be clear, we are doing a, a standalone video about yep. this. Uh, Tom's working on it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it does look absolutely terrific. You know, uh, unstable frame rate is unlocked, but, um, you know, the quality of the visuals is outstanding. Um, I'd like to play more. I've literally just played the first few minutes of it. Um, but it's great that this is... I'm kind of wondering what the commercial angle is. How How is it being paid for? You know, it is. Oh, it's Silent Hill PT. <laughs> but, but that was a teaser for a project in the works, right? And yep. this is like, what is this? Mm -hmm. I, I'm also confused by what they're trying to do here. So yeah. we'll see. Mm -hmm. Any input on that one uh, there, Oliver? No, it looks terrific. I've, I've not played it myself, but um, I mean, I imagine it's probably. Is it? Could it? Could it set up anything in Silent Hill too? I guess it really can't. No, no, can no it? I don't think so. No. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a little bit strange. Maybe it's some sort of precursor to some new announcement. Who knows? But it is an original work, so that's you know, something to be excited about. Um, but let's talk about the Silent Hill 2 footage, where somewhat bizarrely, um, Konami decided to focus on a combat-driven trailer, um, which seems a bit random and a touch inappropriate, possibly. 
Um, John. Yeah, so this is a tricky one, and it really gets me thinking about the nature of remakes and, and such. And So first of all, I, before talking about it, I do want to make it clear that I actually... I've never had an issue with remakes that take uh, creative liberties because the original still exists, right? Mm -hmm. I remember when Metal Gear Solid The Twin Snakes was released, uh, people considered it a travesty. <laughs> and, right, uh, yes. You know, but it didn't take away the original game, right? And I think it was cool to see another vision, however weird it may have been, uh, created. And I appreciate that to some degree. And that's how I'm going to enter the Silent Hill 2 remake. Because fundamentally, I don't think they're going to be able to capture the original experience of Silent Hill 2. Uh, because it was it was a very specific time in games with a very specific set of creators. What they did with that game is something that I'm not sure many other games have ever managed to, to match. You, you really get close. It's It was also something that for many of us it was that specific time in our lives when we played it and the impact of what it what it meant what the the things it explored uh it was very special in that regard but it was also as much as i enjoyed that experience it was an experience driven game and the core gameplay mechanics arguably weren't actually very good like right the, the moment to moment <laughs> what you did in that game was not good the 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 basic combat was very basic uh, hence the name uh and it was but it was not the game was not combat focused those were minor obstacles and it was more the fear of the unknown the darkness that sort of gripped the player this trailer in comparison uh is extremely action focused in a way that's kind of surprised me where it's like extremely visceral looking like yeah we got all these physics in here we got we got nurses vaulting over the walls we've got pieces breaking off uh I, th I actually thought the combat and stuff looked fun and cool it just seems slightly out of place in silent hill 2 and i'll be curious to see how that actually fits into the greater experience but what i will say though is that visually speaking i actually think they did a really good job capturing the color palette and and visual design of the game of the original game more than I expected, actually. It really has that Silent Hill 2 look. The green of James's jacket, that sort of like forest greens, dull color that he wears, and his hair, it, it actually reminds me of the CG sequences from Silent Hill 2 in many okay. ways. Interesting. So I, I like what they're doing there. Uh, oh, God, there was... I, I just saw a QTE scene in there. That stuff... <laughs> Yeah, um, so, yeah, I'm going in with an open mind, but, we'll, yeah, we'll see. Isn't the sort of case, I mean, there, there was a case that the original had a really firmly established aesthetic, which was kind of, how would you describe it, sort of indistinct, grimy, dirty, do, do you see what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And this is kind of pristine rendering, almost. So, uh, it looks very different. The atmosphere just feels different. So one of the challenges that I always felt with Silent Hill, and this is very tough to overcome, is that Silent Hill was a product of the SDTV era. And right, I yes. think the artists very specifically leaned into it in a way. They took advantage of that technology to create something that plays with the imagination. Uh, the first, I remember the very first time I ever saw Pyramid Head, who thankfully did not appear in this yet. I don't 
didn't see him. I, we'll see what happens with it. Uh, the first time you see him, he's behind these bars down a hallway. Your flashlight just caps, captures a little glint off of his, uh, well, pyramid head. But because of the low resolution of the standard definition television, uh, the, the pitch blackness of the scene, you visually can't make out what it is. You just see a distorted figure and then it goes away. And it's those types of moments, those little teases. And the way that your brain can't necessarily understand what you're looking at that really makes it special. Uh, and I think that's actually really difficult to almost impossible to achieve when you're dealing with really high resolutions and modern giant 4k TVs, you kind of, I, I don't know how you solve that problem in an effective way. And there is no horror game in my experience personally that has ever managed to recapture the feeling of playing silent Hill two or these old silent Hill games on like a CRT. Right. Uh, it's, it's so, yeah, I'll be curious to see how it goes. Mm -hmm. uh, anything to add to that, Oliver? Yeah, I thought the focus on combat was a little bit odd. I did think it looked a little bit limp, like the guns don't necessarily kick back too rapidly. The muzzle flashes, you know, didn't look too satisfying. Well, um, Oliver, you know, it's Silent, it's Silent Hill. <laughs> just... Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I, I know, I know. But the, it does seem like there's an increased focus on combat here, or at least that's what they're trying to communicate to us. And uh, that did look a little bit weird to me. Um, I think it still looks great. I think the, I think the rendering looks awesome. Um, maybe not to quite the same caliber as the earlier showing, but this is gameplay footage for the most part and not cutscene footage. That's to be expected. Um, but yeah, I think that it's understandable that people didn't really jibe with this presentation yeah. as much. But maybe that's just an artifact of the way this was presented and maybe in, in the context of the full game it will be uh, a, a better presentation. Mm. John, what do you think of the animation? Because it it kind of there were certain reminders here of the uh, the Metal Gear Solid Three uh, remaster slash remake that they're doing, where it sort of feels like the animation is of a certain age and it's surrounded by these higher quality visuals. Oh, I can kind of see that, but I mean, I don't think they're taking original animations or anything. It's no. clearly all brand new mm -hmm. stuff, and mm -hmm. it's much more complex animation than what was in the original. Uh, arguably, well, it's technically very different, though. Again, we get into the whole interpretation thing as to yep. what they're trying to do. But yeah, it does. It has a strange look to it, where it does look rather modern in terms of rendering features, but something about it does feel a little stiff. Which, again, that's that's Silent Hill. So, the, the, it kind of it it's a difficult game to discuss for exactly that reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think so. It's a hands-on scenario then. I, I need to play this to understand, and I want to play it and look at this game. I, I would like to cover this game for sure, because I think there's going to be a lot of uh, room both for looking at the game itself, but also putting into perspective versus the original mm -hmm. experience. So. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, there were, there were other titles within the state of play, but we've kind of run out of time to discuss them. Uh, Helldivers 2, for example, hopefully we'll be taking a look at that one very, very shortly because it's due you know early next month. Um, but let's move on away from State of Play. So this week was uh, the release of a very, very big game, Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. Uh, it's been in development for many, many years now. It's been surrounded by a, uh, a vast amount of controversy because it is uh, apparently set in the Arkhamverse, but it doesn't really look like an Arkham game, doesn't feel like an Arkham game. 
um, and it's moving away from the single player narrative more towards the sort of games as a service thing which typically here at DF we're not massive massive fans of to say the least uh, but John you decided to seize the nettle to play the game to actually find out what it's all about and I'm very curious I mean obviously um, you know you've got content on the way but I'm curious to see what you think about it yeah, so this was an interesting one because you're exactly right. The build-up to release has been somewhat of a disaster, I would say. The initial showing wasn't good. Yeah. Um, a lot of the things that they chose to focus on in that early media, I think, sort of painted a very negative picture. But after playing it, I actually think it's all right. Okay. I think it's it's not... I, I wouldn't say I like it to the degree of the Arkham games by any stretch, but it is significantly more enjoyable to play through than I expected, uh, and it looks better than I expected. And also, you can kind of, at least thus far, mostly ignore the games-as-a-service stuff, So, which I have done. Okay. Don't I saw some people complaining that oh man like this loot doesn't do much so I don't you know I'm not using it. And I thought that was actually positive because then I don't have to constantly go into the menu and change stuff around. I can just kind of like yep okay there's some loot I'm just going to ignore that. Okay. I don't care about loot. Uh but so first of all let's talk about the the visuals then. So this game fell pr uh sort of prey to one of the biggest problems in recent times which is YouTube compression. <laughs> It, the environment they've built is extremely complex. It's very dense and it relies on a lot of texture detail and nuance and that. But when you strip that stuff away, which is what happens when poor bitrate sort of comes into the mix, it makes the game look, I would say, noticeably worse than it does in person. And I went back to that initial showing with the gameplay and I think this combination of poor compression with just jumping around chaotically without players being able to understand what the core gameplay loop is just paints a very negative picture and it just winds up looking like any of those normal games as a service mobile gamey kind of things okay. and it's not really quite like that right in fact after playing it for a while especially when you play as king shark uh it actually plays a lot like crackdown okay and once i started to treat it more like crackdown but with an actual uh, with with these characters and surprisingly fun story, I had f I've I've been able to have some fun <laughs> despite that, and that's that's not something I expected to say based on everything I'd seen prior because there was a lot of messiness going on, and part of that comes from just also things like the HUD, the initial HUD, the way they showed it. I I shut a lot of that stuff down. You can turn some of that stuff off the damage numbers and some of the readouts and indicators you get, I recommend switching things off because the, the default setup is just a mess. It's just text and numbers everywhere. And it looks terrible, I think, but when you turn it off, you can kind of ignore it and it feels a bit better. I'm feeling scattered because I'm still in the middle of my uh, video on this, but you know, I don't think this is a very middle of the road experience for me. And it's only like, pleasantly surprising because i did have such low expectations but i'm actually i'm kind of enjoying the storytelling so far i don't know how it's going to end up but i like the cutscenes. i like the characters in it i think they're really well voiced and acted 
And this this comes after playing Gotham Knights for the first time this week, which has some <laughs> of the worst delivery I've ever seen. In like it was just dreadfully boring. Zero zero engagement. Here though, when the characters are on the screen and dealing with other other characters in this world, it's actually surprisingly compelling. I thought. Okay. It's kind of tense. So it, it has me wanting to continue. I think this game would have been better if they had left all the service stuff out of it. I, I actually do think that's made the product worse than it should have been. And in fact, even on day one, I had issues where, so we, we got the, the hundred pound uh, early access version first yes. on the Xbox. Right. Mm-hmm. And you pay, you pay a lot of extra money for that early access for this game. And on the first day of testing in the afternoon, the servers just went down for a while. So yeah. I was stuck and I couldn't do any more capture. So I was like, all right, I'll just sit here, twiddle my thumbs and start writing or something, which I did. And it eventually came back up, but that's the kind of thing that just, it feels unacceptable to me when you're asking customers to pay that much extra money for something. And then it's, you're not getting that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. just being connected to the servers all the time. I, there should have been an online mode from day one. You don't need to play online. An uh, offline mode. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, right? Yeah, so, and there was also stories that the game auto-completed when you first started it. Yeah, that's which is that's uh, Which mess. is not great. And prior to that, of course, there was the preview period where the press were, let's just say, uh, unkind uh, or rather... Well, there's a kind of... Um, how can you describe it? A precedent that a preview isn't too judgmental about a game until you've actually gone hands-on with Final Code. Uh, but IGN, and not just IGN, by the way, a lot of outlets basically just yeah. came out straight and said, not really enjoying this, to be honest, which is um, not often seen. And um, it was was quite astonishing to see that unfold. But it does seem that there has been a bit more positive reaction to it. I decided to have a go on it last night. Um, I was on PC, and uh, yeah, we've got problems there, haven't we, John? It's a, it's, it's, it's a. I mean, in the wake of Arkham Knight, you'd think that this wouldn't happen again, but there are some profound issues <laughs> with the PC version of Suicide Squad uh, to the point where I can't even look at it at this point, and I'm not exaggerating with that. It's yeah, it's, it's okay. Not let's great. let's be clear here. So I I am also looking at the PC version. On the consoles, I think if you're playing on Xbox Series X or PS5, you're going to have a good time in terms of like the performance, the experience. It looks good. Uh, Xbox Series S, you'll see in the video. It's something. <laughs> uh, PC, though, PC, I would argue we have a another Jedi Survivor slash possibly Arkham Knight on our hands. Maybe not as bad as Arkham Knight They, at they won't withdraw it from sale. No, it's. I don't think it was like Arkham Knight had some serious, serious issues, and I don't think that's this bad. The issues here on PC are more; they just really impact the general experience, even on a high-end PC. Absolutely. So, first of all, this game has major frame time problems. You cannot get smooth motion, even when your frame rate is high. Everything about it just looks kind of choppy in motion and not right in a way that's not the case on the consoles. Yeah. Uh, I know you felt that, Rich, right? Just looking around with the mouse playing, it feels bad. It, it is bad. And even with a joypad, right, where you yeah, can basically... I mean, yeah, the difference between mouse and joypad is with a mouse, with a joypad, rather, you, you, you can actually change the camera angle in a kind of smooth, sweeping way, but you don't get smooth, sweeping motion. It looks awful. It's, it's, it's like uh, similar to what we saw with uh, EAWRC, where yeah. the camera update is not seemingly in sync with the... 
uh, the movement, which which just looks Correct. bizarre. It, it's very unsightly. The cutscenes just look really, really bad. Well, actually, the, some of the cutscenes they do have some some camera motion issues on consoles as well. But because it's capped at sixty, it feels a bit more like a, sort of an unsteady camera look to it. Right. But on PC, if you're running with a VRR screen and an uncapped frame rate, trying to get those higher frames. It really messes up the cutscenes, and they look they look terrible. Yeah. <laughs> as a result, but the the other the arguably more serious problem is that it's an open it's an open world Unreal Engine four game. So what do you think is going to be in here? It's stutter. There's so <laughs> much stutter in this game. It is nonstop stuttering. It's bad. And this is also one that compiles shaders every time you boot the game. By the way. Uh, yeah, what's that all about? That's bizarre. I don't know. It's, it We've seen that be, before. Absolutely, <laughs> Hogwarts does it. It's exclusive to Unreal Engine, and uh, I don't quite yeah, understand uh, I, why. But I, I don't think I think there is some shader comp stutter in this game, but it's more traversal stutter that's yeah. the problem. Just mm-hmm. moving through the world, the game is constantly just like hitching, stuttering. I, how far did you play, Rich? Did you actually make it to the city? I did make it to the city, yeah. Okay. Uh, absolutely. Oh, so you got to see it's It's bad. In it's the not great, yeah. No, it's it's it feels terrible. And if you look at the frame time graphs, you can see it. It's just all over the place. And we're all running on pretty high-end machines, I would say, right? Well, you're not going to get much better than a 4090 with a 13900K. And, you know, so, I was doing stuff like, um, you know, going to DLSS performance mode. Um, yes, you know, which you shouldn't really do, and no. uh, you know you can be running at 144 frames per second. It just it still doesn't look right. It's just yep. bizarre. And actually, the stutters get worse at those higher frame rates. Yeah, absolutely. Longer, right? I mean, you know, the higher you are, the lower you fall. Really, that's the way it yep, works yep, with, yep. With, with the stuttering. Uh, on top of that, though, the PC version has ray traced reflections as an option, and it has to be some of the least optimized or at least heaviest ray trace reflections I've ever seen. And given what they look like, I'm not sure it justifies that performance hit. Uh, it's very CPU heavy. So I'm using a 12900K CPU, which is, it's getting older now, but it should still be adequate for this, especially considering <laughs> ray tracing performance in so many other games. Uh, the RT reflections, there are part points where my frame rate would dip into the 30s which is unacceptable. Wow. Okay. This. It's not smooth. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I can't play it with ray tracing on, and that is the one big visual feature that it has over the consoles. Yeah. And uh, we got this question here from Eric Hurst. John, I have played a bit of Suicide Quad Squad Kill the Justice League, and I think, there's, I think that there is a great game deep underneath the shell of a live service game that presents itself that it presents itself as. In fact, it sort of reminds me of the feeling I got playing Arkham Knight on PC day one back in the day, an excellent game that was buried under a thick pile of mud that was the PC port. Yet it seems Arkham Knight has managed to climb out of the mud and become a fantastic game in most aspects on every platform. Do you think history will be as kind to Suicide Squad? Do you think that if Rocksteady puts in the work to undo some of the terrible games-as-a-service tropes, as they've already claimed they will be, they will by doing... Uh, Things such as removing the always online story mode, that someday the game will rise to some form of glory, or instead, now that it has started down the dark path, will it forever dominate its destiny? Um, what do you make of that? Well, I the first thing is I want to 
point out the line. He says, do you think history will be as kind to Suicide Squad? Which is funny in the context as a game in the context of a game as a service, given that its history will likely amount to being offline and no longer playable. Uh, but we'll see. Hopefully it's not the case. Well, they're saying here there's <laughs> going to be an off an offline version of the story mode. Uh, I guess the question is, will it be how will this remain accessible long term? We'll see. Hopefully, but uh, I don't know, man. I, I I know some people were hard on Arkham Knight. I loved Arkham Knight from the beginning. I thought it was awesome. I preferred it to Arkham City. Honestly, the, the console versions were fine, right? You know, there was some was excellent some yeah. performance issues when in the Batmobile, but it was fundamentally barely. Sound. I'd say mm. it was almost completely locked with perfect frame pacing and just gent stunning visuals for the time. It was arguably the best looking game that had been released at that time, mm-hmm. I would say, or at least in the top five. It was up it, there. It yeah. was up there. It was something special. And you go back to it now and you're like, wow, this is stunning. Suicide Squad. I think fundamentally, I do think the core gameplay loop is reasonably fun, but the actual mission design lacks the flair and, and interesting design elements that you get in the Batman games, because a lot of it does. Unfortunately, even though the core combat can be enjoyable, it does still often amount to going to parts on a map and shooting guys. And again, that's not necessarily bad, but uh, there, there have been, however, some hints, there's been some sequences that feel somewhat, I guess, more interesting narratively and sort of set piece like to a degree, like the first, I don't want to spoil too much, but like, there's that point early on where you first encounter Batman and that alone was, I thought pretty cool to set up, uh, mm. evil Batman there, you know, but beyond that, after you survive that little sequence, uh, you're actually let out into this sort of museum piece that you're kind of exploring with like all of Batman's like accomplishments yep. and you see all the villains and, and the heroes sort of spelled out within and hearing your characters comment on what they hear from the little speaker boxes you can go up to press. And it's a fun little moment that, that adds a lot. And those are the types of things that have sort of made the game more interesting to want to continue playing. I would say, uh, because the core loop, while fun enough, could very well become very tiresome by the end, mm-hmm. which the Arkham games specifically were known for very creative, carefully crafted level designs. Yeah, in City and Night, you did have the open world environment, but it was not that large and it was designed as sort of like a web, almost a hub-like area that connected these much larger, carefully crafted levels together. And there's a lot less of that in this game, from what I can tell. Yeah. I mean, I didn't get any kind of sort of immensely appealing wow factor from starting the game. You know? No, not a wow. Certainly not a wow factor. No. Yeah. Uh, uh, Difficult one. Oh, man. So we'll see. Uh, I think this game is going to go down as okay. <laughs> okay. I think it's not the disaster people expected it to be. That is kind of damning with faint praise, though. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad game, and I've had some fun with it, and I didn't expect that necessarily, but it is. And I do think some aspects of the visuals will be very remembered as well. I think the cutscenes in particular, it's not gameplay, I get it, but in terms of just pure visual design, the actual cutscene quality is extremely good. Yeah, character animation work, the performances... It's striking. You actually want to see them continue to interact with one another 
in a way that was not the case in Gotham Knights, which, uh, <laughs> woof, there's cutscenes, man. That's that's not very good. Yeah, just, uh, uh, you know, for the benefit of those who aren't on the supporter program, John spent an hour with Gotham Knights this week <laughs> and uh, recorded it for posterity, and um, it's become the second entry in the John Versus series that's uh, exactly. exclusive content just for supporters. <laughs> Seems to be going down well. Um, yeah, people have enjoyed it. I did enjoy the fact that initially you were quite enthusiastic about it during the first in- investigation scene <laughs> of the tutorial, and then you got out into the city and uh, on your ultra-high-end PC you were dipping beneath 60 frames per second, and there was this kind of air of in- incredulity about the whole thing. It's like, what, what's yeah. causing this? How How is this happening? <laughs> You don't see it on the screen, right? You're looking at how the game looks, and you're like, "What is like? What's why is it run like this?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite didn't quite make sense. It, it doesn't. It doesn't make doesn't sense. Didn't. No. Yeah, <laughs> it, it still does not. I don't think we've got too much more to say about Suicide Squad without spoiling the content. Um, but uh, yeah, I think people are going to be talking about this for quite some time, uh, and I guess we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on. So reports emerged this week from Bloomberg that uh, a major analyst in Japan who specializes in examining the supply chain for displays, um, they're making the claim that um, Nintendo's next generation console uh, is going to have an 8-inch display. There have been previous reports that... um, there'll be an 8-inch 1080p display. So we seem to be seeing some sort of, um, you know, sort of agreement between very different sources here that that is uh, what's going to happen. We can't confirm that. We don't know that in the in the here and now. But what we do know is that the concept of having an 8-inch display on a handheld machine could have profound implications on the expectation levels that we should set for the machine. So let me explain here, right? So um, here we have uh, the Switch OLED, which is um, the machine that has the the largest display in the current Switch lineup, right? That's a seven-inch display, seven-inch OLED display. And when we're talking about eight-inch, we've got the PlayStation Portal. (laughs) There it is. And it's basically, we're looking at a vastly, you know, larger um, display there, which means a vastly larger handheld. I mean, maybe not as hulking as this beast. Um, And in turn, you've got to ask yourself questions like, well, is this actually going to be a Switch 2 if, you know, your Joy-Cons aren't going to be able to attach to it? Because that would be a bit of a struggle. And, you know, it just wouldn't look right. It, It would be a bit weird. Um, yeah, lots of questions that are being uh, raised in the wake of this news. Uh, John, what do you think? Yeah, so I think um, if they're going for that large size, my best guess would be that they have sort of accepted the fact that this is going to be a larger machine than the original Switch. And based on the rumored specs and what we've been hearing about it, I would expect that the chip powering it, the SOC, is not going to be an especially small package. Yeah. And thus, between that and the battery life considerations, I would imagine that they're going to find every way to increase the amount of internal real estate. And increasing the screen size is a great way to do that uh, because it, you know, the consumer can enjoy the bigger size, but it automatically means your device has to be bigger and now there's more inter- interior space. 
And I think at this point we've reached, we've reached a point where people are somewhat more accepting of larger handhelds again. Uh, we're in the post iPad tablet world and things like steam deck and everything have taken off and have become very successful. Uh, maybe not Nintendo level kind of mass market success, but I genuinely think people would be more accepting of a big machine. And I would not be surprised to see the Joy-Con removed entirely and replaced with onboard controls. Right. Uh, I think the Joy-Con concept was neat. It kind of worked. But in practice, I suspect that people weren't switching between them that often. And it ultimately just made the machine feel somewhat flimsier. It was another point of failure. When holding it, it always had a little bit of a wiggle to it. Just a little bit. Just enough where you're like, mm, this doesn't feel great in the hands. Uh, and I never use the Joy-Con really. When I dock it, I just use a Pro Controller. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't mind that either. But they, uh, that but is does, a peripheral, it, right? Which kind of suggests that if you can't remove your controller from Switch 2, they would have to include a They would have controller. to include it in the box. I agree, which adds to the expense, of course. Um, so there, that is an interesting shift, and I'll be curious to see what they do with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, it's... that. you remember those weird rumors, though, about the, the double screen thing? Right. I wonder what... That, like, what's going on here? There's so much we just don't know about this machine right now and what they're, what they're trying to do. And even the name Switch, we've been calling it the Switch 2, but when you remove the Joy-Con, I mean, technically you can still dock or undock, but it kind of takes part of the the meaning of the Switch name away from it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, which mm -hmm. also, I, I'm very curious to see what's going to become of this hardware. And I hope that they do reveal this somewhat soon i feel like if they're going to launch it this year we're going to have to hear about it in the next few months i mean i think that the idea of a bigger switch it, it does feel like a natural evolution because if you go from the original switch that had a 6.2 inch lcd and you go to the oled which has a 7 inch oled display the magnitude of increase in the size of the display is pretty similar to that you know 0.8 inches versus mm. one inch it makes a lot of sense especially if you're looking at some of these windows devices that people tend to like and they might have seven inch screens but they have very large controls attached or like the you know playstation portal size uh, device as well so i think the switch to in yes exactly the, the 7.4 inch <laughs> uh, oled steam deck of course I think that the Switch 2 probably would have pretty reasonable dimensions in that context, even if they go with a larger display, because the controls will probably be comparatively quite a bit smaller. Um, mm -hmm. I know people are upset about the LCD thing, and I kind of think that it just, this to me feels like classic Nintendo and very natural, and I wasn't expecting an OLED device. Um, I hope that it is so yeah Nintendo, it's very Nintendo yeah. and also like if you look at the production cost of an OLED screen it's only like 25 or 30 percent more than a comparable LCD so it's not even like that much of a cost saving yeah but if everything else about the machine is that expensive yeah. and they have to bundle in a controller I can see why they would want to cut yeah. those costs and also I hope I hope mm. that this would set them up for maybe a supercharged OLED model in, in maybe two years or something yep. that maybe has HDR support or something else that's exciting see right that's but I was hoping for HDR support out of it. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like the Switch, this concept would be perfect 
for that because if you're HDR on the go, everybody can experience the games in HDR. Yeah. Yes. I, I also just think that people should understand historically, like I played a lot on earlier Nintendo handhelds like the DS, the 3DS, uh, the Wii U, which was a handheld sort of technically, right? And those like TN LCDs, well, in the 3DS, it depended on what panel you got from the panel lottery, but like yes. it could be a TN LCD. Uh, those were like really horrible panels in retrospect. So I think even like a sort of semi-decent IPS panel on the Switch 2 before being upgraded to an OLED a couple of years later. It's not the worst thing in the world, especially for like really bright games that don't depend on having really deep, dark contrast. There are those titles like Metroid Prime 2 or like a feature in Metroid Prime or like a Luigi's Mansion, but most games like Mario Karts will probably still look pretty decent on, a, on an LCD. I don't, man, I, I just hope it's a decent LCD, yeah. right? Because the LCD and the original not Switch so and the original Steam Deck for that matter they're they're garbage tier they don't look good games actually it feels like the hardware got more of an upgrade internally just because of the screen yeah. <laughs> like right. it makes that big of a difference so <laughs> yeah i get what you're saying yeah this is all really interesting i mean the concept of having an eight inch screen does mean a larger device and that kind of makes sense if what we're hearing about the switch uh processor the new soc the new tegra is true that it's an eight nanometer chip which is going to be quite large but also quite cheap for um, Nintendo to to buy, which would make sense based. That's exactly what happened with uh, Tegra X1 on the original Switch. Old process, um, therefore cheap to buy, um, cheap to make, cheap to buy. And therefore, if you've got a larger chip that needs better cooling, then you, know, you have a larger device. How do you make that device work from an ergonomic perspective, from an aesthetic perspective? Well, you put a bigger screen on it, kind of all sorts of starts to come together. Maybe we're going to get this completely wrong. <laughs> the concept of having um, detachable Joy-Cons, I mean, we're not ruling it out by any means. It's just they would be like Joy-Con 2s, you know, Super Joy-Con or whatever. They'd be a very different configuration um, because the casing has necessarily got to be quite different. I mean, if you look at the, yep, yep. Um, at the Switch here, uh, you know, the Joy-Con is basically flush with the... Uh, with the the depth of the machine there. If the new machine is deeper, how are these things going to attach? You know, I don't think there could be any sort of level of, of compatibility there. Um, Maybe so wireless compatibility? Wireless, possibly, mm -hmm. yeah, right? I guess that would make sense. Um, I guess also, the you know, the question is, yeah, you know, the whole Switch concept becomes something quite different then, doesn't it, you know? Uh, the concept of it, having to bundle in a separate controller because you Rich, do you, do you have your um, Steam Deck OLED there, by the way, handy? Uh, no, I don't. I have the standard picking, one. Picking up the, the Steam Deck and then the Switch OLED, I actually I had this impression that the Switch OLED was heavier somehow. No, I it don't felt, think so. <laughs> like, it genuinely felt... It, it felt like I think it's because it has that sort of metal body on it and it just there's something about it that made it feel like chunkier somehow right despite uh -huh. being smaller so I don't I, I haven't looked at the official measurements so I was curious about mm -hmm. that there's such an air of mystery around the uh, the next generation switch at the moment I'm surprised there haven't been more leaks to be honest um, mm. you know maybe you know, Nintendo's sort of playing it safe with the design of the development kit you know, it might not be anything like final hardware. It might just be an anonymous-looking black box, for all we know. You know, what if they do a uh, a retro switch that uses a CRT with like big old cast iron rails on the side for putting your Joy Cons on, <laughs> just to hold the weight? Man, 
you put the battery in your pocket like the Vision Pro. That's quite a flight of fancy, though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, I hope to see something new soon and uh, something that puts an end to all of the speculation. I do remember, you know, prior to the launch of the, uh, the sorry, prior to the reveal of the original Switch 1, it was, you NX. know, all bets, all bets were off. You know, there was crazy talk, you know, there was people saying it's going to be a high-end AMD device. We had pretty good sourcing that it was going to be using Tegra X1 uh, or maybe some variant thereof, which turned out to be broadly accurate. But man, you know, things are sort of really ratcheting up to the max at the moment. I just want some answers at this point. <laughs> I think same, we can safely same. assume it's going to be an NVIDIA Tegra in there, but that's pretty much it form factor and um, I think the thing that going back to the original reveal trailer it was all about the everyday use of the device you know what set this apart from a standard home console they showed all of the potential use case scenarios I would love to see a rerun of that you know just to show us what this device is actually envisaged as and you know whether there is going to be any kind of continuity with the original switch one I think there'll be backwards compatibility I think that's pretty much a given at this point but you know how does this device actually work? I think there's fantastic uh, potential, but I've just have to wait and see. In the meantime, it does look as though we're getting an eight-inch LCD <laughs> display. Sorry, John. I'm resigned to that fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on. Final news topic of the week, and it's music to John's ears because for a while now there's been some concern about uh, Gran Turismo Sport and the fact that you know you can't actually play it unless you're online. And um, it has been revealed, Polyphony Digital has allegedly confirmed that there will be a final patch that basically allows for the game to be run offline. And um, you didn't really see this coming, right, John? You were fearing oh. the worst. Yeah, because traditionally most publishers do not care about this sort of thing, and they're very happy to just let a game expire and become unplayable. Uh, it just happened with the crew. It's or it will happen. It's either way, that game is going away, it won't be playable anymore. Uh, and it was so GT Sport has offline capability, but you couldn't actually save your game or really do anything in there. There was no real progression that was possible, making it basically unplayable without the servers. Uh, but here they've decided to update the game to ensure that at least all the single player stuff in the game will be playable as it was without a server connection allowing you to save offline now obviously this also means that disc versions of the game will continue to rely on needing an update to to be functional which but it's more likely the update servers at least with sony stuff especially where their update servers can be directly accessed from a web browser and you can actually download those updates and put them on like a yeah. hard drive or something and presumably in the future deploy them yourself if you wanted to so there, there is something there at least so i'm happy to see that it also gives me a lot more confidence in gran turismo 7 long term that right. they would eventually allow you to play all the single player stuff without a connection with the final patch uh which i'm pleasantly surprised i genuinely did not expect that i did not think they would do it why and not, so why few not? companies would uh, that's that's time money engineering efforts spent on something for a product that's being discontinued right you have to justify that budget like yeah this is uh like if you're discontinuing a product because it's reached a certain point in its life 
to be able to say, okay, we're going to invest amount X amount of money into producing additional work and additional patches for this product to ensure that people can keep playing it. Uh, that sounds great to the normal consumer, but I don't feel like, you know, when Ubisoft says we're closing on the crew, do you really think that they care that much about that? Like, nope, we're done with it. Wash the hands. You know, that's the, that's the feeling I get. Higher ups would be unwilling to spend that money. Mm-hmm. They're cutting it for a reason. So why would they spend more money to go back and do that? Uh, is the feeling I get. I, I don't know internally what those look like. Maybe there are people fighting for this stuff and this one just happened to get through. Mm-hmm. but we've not really seen it before. <laughs> not okay. like this. So I, we wanted to highlight it because it is an example of actual good behavior on that front. And hopefully more publishers with games that could potentially be lost, uh, see what's happened here, see the response and consider doing it in the future. Mm-hmm. Any reactions to that, Oliver? No, not particularly. I just hope this sets a, sets a standard, and I hope that certain online-only games like Suicide Squad are patched with this functionality in mind, because it is really, really annoying when you're playing a game that is, uh, you know, ostensibly an online-only game, but could probably be played perfectly well in a single-player offline mode, and you can't do it because the nope. servers are down for some reason or another. Yeah, yeah, I'm reminded of that whole thing that happened with the Mate Fix Awakens. Do you remember that, Oliver? Oh yeah, that was a slight panic over that. <laughs> don't know again, yeah. yeah, essentially, I mean, it, it is an entirely offline experience. There's no need whatsoever for an online check, and basically, there was a fault with the servers, right? So you couldn't actually load this really important part of Unreal Engine Five history anymore. It just didn't work on any system for no good reason. Um, it would have required hackers to go in and, you know. Uh, on on the PlayStation version, at least, where it is hackable to actually remove that server check. And, um, yeah, I remember getting in touch with Epic about this and um, not getting sort of recognition of what actually was happening. And I had to kind of press it and say, look, it's just you can't run run (laughs) this really important demo anymore. I'm still baffled as to why it hasn't been updated to remove that server check, but there it is. So, yeah, that's just a sort of minor example, really. And I'm glad to see that things are changing with Gran Turismo Sport there because, you know, obviously it's been superseded by a new game in the series. But, you know, regardless of that, the original should be able to be played, you know, years in a, from now, decades from now even. And that's just not possible if the server just goes offline suddenly. And, um, yeah, I think that's something that people don't often sort of appreciate, John, is, you know, they don't really understand the timescales that we're talking about here when we talk about preservation. It's not just, you know, what's happening in the next, you know, two or three years. It's like what's happening in the next two or three decades. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Like, you know what? I'm not a fan of a game like Battleborn, for instance, but I think it should be able to be played today. Yeah. And it's dead. You can't play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, what, there was a, that one game from platinum games i guess it was the uh the square enix published one babylon's fall right which i think also is dead again not it seems like oh who cares not a big loss but that's a piece of history uh gaming history from a very big developer that's just gone mm-hmm. uh also their apple arcade game just vanished as well which apple arcade is a whole nother <laughs> problem because everything on there that doesn't come out anywhere else when it goes away from that service, it's gone forever. And there's really no way for any normal user to get access to it as far as I can tell. Okay. So uh, that sucks. Okay. But good news in this case. <laughs> good news in this case. Possible. 
Okay, excellent. Um, well, that's the end of the news for this week. So let's plow on into support of Q&A, which is the part of the show where, uh, well, every week on our Patreon page, we ask our supporters to come up with questions. They can be related to uh, the news topics of the week or anything, really. And um, we're going to begin with this question from Never Ready Eddie. Hi, DFT. Great work as always. I note in John's video on Tekken 8, he votes Epic's TSRs being the best of the many, many upscalers in the game. I think there's like 17 in total. And yeah. this isn't the first time DF has picked TSR over DLSS, the long-standing champ. I wonder how it can beat NVIDIA's DLSS, given their behemoth amount of technical wizards, and more specifically their use of AI and hardware to do the tricks. Surely Epic can't have the same resources behind its TSR development that NVIDIA has put into DLSS. Into DLSS. How does Epic's TSR work compared to DLSS and its AI wizardry? This is an interesting question, right, John? Because I, I think typically DLSS is better than TSR. Yes. Um, and they work fundamentally from the same inputs. Um, um, I, th I think the point of distinction that, that he's missing here, and this is kind of a UI issue with the way Tekken presents it, is that uh, the difference is that this game supports DLSS, mm -hmm. not DLAA. So DLSS right. is working from a lower input resolution. When using TSR within Tekken 8, there is a resolution slider exposed and this allows you to set the internal resolution to 100%. So you're basically eliminating the upsampling portion of it. Right. And it's basically using TSR just as TAA, mm -hmm. which is what DLAA would do if it was offer offered, which is to say 100% scaling TSR versus DLAA. I'd be curious to see them. Perhaps they would be comparable. Maybe DLAA would have an edge. But in this case, I think to compare it, we have to figure out the res of DLSS quality and then set the res slider appropriately for TSR and see how they compare. Right. Yeah, it would be 67% um, for Right, uh, which I don't even... Well, you can set this maybe 65%. Yeah, 65%. Yeah. So you can get close. I have okay. to look at that. Mm -hmm. But then the other part of TSR was all the Steam Deck talk where I was recommending TSR and there that's uh, DLSS is obviously irrelevant since it does not work on the Steam Deck. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really where TSR showed its muscle right. because that was using upscaling and often from lower resolutions even than FSR and it absolutely wiped the floor with FSR, TAAU, and even XESS. That's interesting. So, that impressed me. It was much, much cleaner. Mm -hmm. You saw in the footage, right? The the FSR footage in particular was nasty comparatively. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty much a nightmare scenario for these uh, upscalers because, you know, basically the fighters are moving and, and therefore, you know, new in visual information that isn't in prior history is being taken into, you know, appearing in view. And yep. um, it kind of has to work along, you know, with very little information to reconstruct at that point. It was like 60 to 65% of 720p, yeah. which is not much. Yeah, I mean, I've been impressed with TSR in Fortnite and what it can do at 720p from basically like 360p, um, yep. you know, performance yep. mode, which is, which is quite impressive. But then again, Fortnite, I think, is a kind of game where it's not heavy on, you know, visual detail. So it's quite friendly to these upscalers. Uh, any, any thoughts on this, Oliver? No, I would just contest the idea that uh, NVIDIA is necessarily putting a lot more software engineers on this problem. I think Epic probably has a healthy amount of software engineers trying to improve TSR to the best of their ability. And yeah, I typically think that DLSS typically has less annoying breakup than uh, TSR, but I would definitely rank TSR in almost 
every case I've looked at it, including in Robocop recently, above FSR2 in terms of avoiding like annoying disocclusion artifacts and things like that. It definitely does present a more stable image when in motion, for sure. Yeah, it's great to actually have those options available, especially on a handheld. And uh, there are scenarios where um, I prefer to use uh, XCSS over FSR2 on a handheld. You just you pay more seemingly from a computational perspective, but you just lose far fewer, far less detail. Uh, so it's great to have those options. It puzzles me a bit like Immortals of Avium just remove the option completely on PC. You know, it's 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 free. It's part of Unreal Engine. Include it. it just doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, let's move on to the next question, and this one is from uh, Kyrith. Hello from Cincinnati DF crew, exclamation point. Yes, uh, your neck of the woods from back in the day, yes, right, John? Hometown, baby. Uh, my question, nasty natty. <laughs> my question is for everyone, but especially John. What is it that makes per pixel motion blur look so good, but sample and hold persistence blur look so bad? When I strain my eyes staring for the, dif- uh, for the difference, they end up looking rather similar. Perhaps it's just that games which ought not to have motion blur, 2D scrollers, suffer from persistence blur. I think there's more to it. Thoughts? Uh, interesting mm. one, right? But we kind of like more fans of per object motion blur, uh, right? As opposed yeah, to... Yeah, which is per pixel motion blur, of course. But uh, the main difference comes down to the way velocity and momentum is translated into a visual flourish. Uh, right. I think if you actually go back to something like Tekken 6 or Tag 2, I was looking at those recently... The motion blur in action looks awesome in those games. The way the fighters move, it's very exaggerated. If you pause a frame, though, you'll see that the amount of blurring actually happening is significant. It's such that if the LCD persistence blur looked anything like that, it would basically be impossible to see. And it's because it's a very short time frame where this really fast motion uh, uses this super high uh, type of motion blur with with this shutter speed designed to make it look that way. So it exaggerates the motion. So normally during slow movements, you won't actually see that much motion blur when it's done well, but when any sort of like big animation or huge change happens, the motion blur sort of fills in the gaps between the frames and creates this like fluid look to it that it actually resembles what you get with like a film or well, with a camera. That's basically. the whole point, right? <laughs> right, it's a simulated camera. Right, yes. that's what it does. Which is uh, which isn't the persistence from sample and hold. Which no, is sample and different. hold style blur is across the board. It doesn't really get. It doesn't really become more exaggerated. Like obviously, the faster you move, the blurrier it gets, but not in the same way, right? And it's it just kind of it just kind of obscures details and right. motion in a yeah. way that's and it's across the entire image all the time rather than specific objects. Like if the backgrounds rotating a little bit in versus the the fast motion of like a fighter punching the 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 ex- also as you mentioned rich you can apply per per pixel motion blur sometimes you've seen games that sort of apply it more to specific objects like the original crisis actually mm-hmm. uh, was like that so yeah there's many different ways to do it but i think that's fundamentally what it is is when you take into account the momentum and velocity and the way that looks and what it allows you to do but I'm actually curious to hear Oliver's take as well. Yeah, I think I think one big problem with like LCDs and sample and hold blur relative to like uh, per pixel motion blur techniques is that you get persistence of that blur across multiple frames, 
Whereas with uh, per pixel blur, it really should just be between those two frames. So you end up with kind of like long trails of ghosted motion. And you're seeing that because of the, the display characteristics. It's not like a computed thing between two frames that should look very consistent and even like a film camera would produce it. So I think that's like, to me, that's a big problem where it just ends up looking really smeary because it's actually smearing the movement yeah. from multiple frames. Yeah. And you're seeing that persistence for longer, much longer than you would in a, in a, in a game with per pixel motion blur. Yeah, mm, that all makes sense. I mean, it's not. It, this is an artifact of the display technology, not an attempt to emulate the <laughs> the the behaviors of a camera. <laughs> it's two very different things there. Um, exactly. Let's move on to the next question. This one from Vasil uh, Miladinov. Hope I got the pronunciation of that one right. Hi, DF! Exclamation point. With frame generation technology becoming more common, do you foresee an eventual end to VRR displays? Virtual reality headsets already avoid them due to motion sickness. And it seems like a lot of complexity to keep around when you could just fill in extra frames at the source. Interesting question there. I mean, you know, when we were, um, I think I've mentioned this before, when we were at AMD for Gamescom, you know, they did seem to indicate that the end game for frame generation technology is just that it would match the sample rate, the refresh rate of your monitor and just you know automatically give very smooth motion i think from my perspective just the, the the presence of frame generation it's not always going to be a feature that you will want to use right you should or have, always available yeah the, the point is that pc is supposed to give you options additional options not take options away and i don't think vrr is going anywhere anytime soon and of course there are additional things of course like um you know, let's say you've got a 300 hertz display, but, you know, frame generation kind of looks best at 150 or 160, you know, or a clean multiple of 60 to match like, you know, full motion video, that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of use case scenarios where using the two together actually makes a lot of sense. Um, but what do you make of this, John, particularly this thing about VR headsets uh, avoiding? So I just, I think he's missed the reason for why they might specify motion sickness it's actually, I think, not due to motion sickness. It's because to solve this problem, they have to do ultra low persistence display techniques, which is basically like pulsing, strobing, black frame insertion kind of thing, right? Which until this new G-Sync Pulsar, I think it was called, yeah. that NVIDIA revealed, there wasn't really an effective way to combine VRR with uh, that low persistence sort of update. Yeah. And in VR, that would be great to combine those because there are plenty of games like uh, on the Quest, for instance, even on PSVR and any other platform, really, where the frame rate is not consistently hitting the target refresh rate. Uh, and being able to handle that with VRR would be excellent if you could combine it with the low persistence stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're making a VR headset, it's better to go for low persistence, no blur versus VRR. But if you could have both, that would be optimal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oliver, anything to add? Uh, I think in a final sense, you probably it probably would be quite nice to just have a fixed panel refresh rate and a, and a fixed uh, display frame rate on the, on the console or the PC. I think, I think in part VR is an artifact of the fact that we have finite hardware power, which is maybe a problem that won't ever go away, but it is, mm. it is a solution for that in, in much the same way that dynamic resolution is often a solution for that problem. 
in console games. But to me, frame generation just feels like a different trade-off in terms of quality for displays with variable backlight, with dimming zones, with BFI, for sure getting away from variable refresh helps out those technologies. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from uh, Kokimo. I believe that's the, <laughs> the pronunciation. I don't know. Hey, fellas, what speed <laughs> of hardware adoption uh, should we reasonably expect from the gaming community, PC or console? Legacy support is great as it allows people with moderately older to significantly older hardware to still participate in the latest games. However, it also tends to hold back new games from reaching the heights they otherwise could have had if they'd simply abandoned older hardware considerations and focused on what's next. Consoles are the prime example, of course, since they have distinct hardware generations that only update every three to seven years. But even PC hardware can start to show its age rather quickly as games try to push the boundaries, e.g. Alan Wake. Uh, it's an interesting discussion, right? Because it does fundamentally come down to the concept of um, there needs to be a reset point in order to actually start to use new features. And it's kind of been blurred with this particular generation. If you compare the transition from PS3 to PS4 to the transition from PS4 to PS5, that was a, you know, very different, you know. So when, you know, what what is the, the reasonable speed of hardware adoption? Oliver, any thoughts on this one? I think consoles sort of set the pace by dint of their relative market size and the kinds of games that tend to be developed around consoles. So I would say every seven years, roughly speaking, would be a, a, a reasonable pace to at least be able to keep pace with running the latest software. Although it kind of depends on what the console spec is relative to PC specs at that time. Like if you had a, you know, a two gigabyte GPU in 2013, that would probably not fare too well in titles released in 2018, right? Even though it yeah. would have been a similar generation of hardware relative to consoles. Mm -hmm. So I would say kind of roughly maybe that five to seven year range would be reasonable just to run the games. But obviously if you're aiming to run the games at high settings with new PC graphical features with path tracing, whatever, that, that isn't really going to cut it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You look at the Steam hardware survey, and that pretty much gives you an idea of the transition rate. Um, we are now at the point where, you know, it's 2020 GPUs that are coming to the fore now. 3060 is doing really well. It seems to be at the top most months. Um, and that's like a three-year-old GPU. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's still people that really, really don't want to let go of their 10 series Pascal cards. <laughs> But I really think they should. Uh, John, the 1650s. <laughs> six, yeah, the 1650, man. You know, just go away. Um, <laughs> uh, John, what do you think about this? I mean, it, uh... the transition point was kind of blurred with this generation, but at the same time, cross-gen, I don't know, you know, I, I do think a lot of people moved across to PlayStation uh, 5 and PlayStation 4. Yeah, no, that's a, hmm, that is kind of a tricky one. Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think with PC, P PCs, just like PC itself is is intentionally like an open platform. So I think being able to push uh, whatever you want should always be a thing. And there can't really, I don't think there really can ever be a fixed sort of point where it says, "Oh, you can no longer use this hardware," right? Because right. uh, it's gonna it's gonna vary per game. And yeah, that's what that's just that's the whole thing with minimum requirements on games is that you developers set what you need 
and because it's an open platform, I, I don't think there's any anybody's ever going to agree to like this is a fixed target spec that you need to hit. I think Microsoft tried it at one point. You remember with the Windows Vista like computer score thing? Right. Ever you get the number assigned to your system? Like they would put it on the box. Like oh, if you if you hit this number, you can play the game, kind of thing. But uh, I I think it's just it's gonna have to be the way it's always been it used to be a lot worse actually where pc hardware was uh you you could maybe stay current for a year and then the following year everything's changed yeah that's definitely the case just the classic case in point of rendition verite which i have oh absolutely like gpus are expensive today no doubt but they can last a whole heck of a lot longer than they used to yeah they just generally (laughs) tend to you know you run them at lower frame rates and lower resolutions but you know there is the case of um the DirectX 12 feature set you know you kind of want that stuff now you kind of want ray tracing um you want mesh shaders certainly in the case of Alan Wake too absolutely <laughs> absolutely it's but it is a sort of more gradual transition that we we probably suspected there but yeah interesting nonetheless but i think ultimately it does seem to be the dominant console that sets the agenda in terms of AAA game development but then you've got there's a lot more to pc than AAA. you know there's the esports side of things there's the indie side of things it's uh it, you know the the performance targets do vary on a game by game basis as do the feature set requirements i'm sure there's a ton of games that just still run great on that 1650 absolutely but, uh probably not more recent ones i'm thinking more esports 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 yeah. esports <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on to the final question this one from guy mendez greetings df crew exclamation point Got one here, especially for Rich. When did you shift your interest from the usual magazine-style game-slash-hardware review uh, focused more on consoles and console games to be more keen on the intricacies uh, the intricacies, advances of PC technology like CPUs and GPUs and the capabilities of hardware in general? Did it coincide with the foundation of Digital Foundry and your quest for reference-grade capture methods for displaying and measuring performance in games? Now, since I get the impression that Alex and John pretty much into the PC platform since its golden years. I want to know if there's a console or game exclusive for a console that made them reconsider that the PC was the be-all and end-all. Uh, well, I'll take my question first. It's like two questions in one here. Um, when did I get sort of interested in CPUs and GPUs? I think it's probably when Crisis came along because that was such a, you know, well, hmm, this is tricky. Doom. <laughs> Doom was the game. <laughs> If we go back to, um, you know, 90, was it 94, John, when Doom came out? 93. 93, yeah. Um, we were sort of still in the midst of uh, Super NES and Mega Drive at that point. And then suddenly Doom comes along and it's a game of a game type that's just was just, you know, revolutionary. It was just yeah. astonishing. And I didn't, I wasn't even aware of the multiplayer angle at that point. It was only until like a, a year or so later when I visited... Um, game developer Virgin Interactive in um, Irvine, California, um, that I saw people playing multiplayer Doom. And this, again, was like a completely different sort of experience to anything I'd ever experienced before. So that was the point where I think PC actually became sort of firmly a part of, um, of, of, of my sort of transition to wanting to know more about CPUs and GPUs. And certainly in terms of CPU performance, when we were doing this um, capture side of things, because there was no proper HD capture solutions back in the day, 
Um, when you're streaming in like 720p or 1080p um, across a capture card and onto a hard drive, um, the file sizes were prohibitively large, so you needed a good CPU at that point. And, you know, the single thread stuff on, you know, the Pentium 4s and whatnot wasn't cutting it. And then AMD came, came along with the Athlon X2s, dual cores, Intel followed suit. That was, you know, basically my aspirations for being able to do my job were tied intricately to um, the capabilities of CPU to stream that stuff. Um, GPUs... Yeah, I guess, you know, just over the course of time, it became evident that consoles were a fixed platform with a finite level of processing power. What more can you do with, with any particular game? And it, inevitably, you end up on PC. And I think we're going to reach that point sooner rather than later in this current generation as well, until the PS5 Professional comes along. But I'm interested, uh, John, in terms, of, uh, in terms of the question here, because... Guy is kind of suggesting that you were kind of Team PC all along, but that's not strictly true, is it? Uh, I became Team PC in 1994. Right. Uh, but so there was this period where I kind of, I wouldn't, I didn't completely lose interest in consoles, but from about 94 to 98, most of my gaming time was focused on the PC. Mm -hmm. And it was games like Doom that pushed me in that direction doom and then like quake duke nukem 3d stuff like that uh I, I was enamored with the 3d technology made possible in the pc when 3d accelerator cards hit i was super into that yeah the thing so and i continue to play a lot of pcs since then but there was a point i guess when the sega saturn started to get cheap in 97 my mega drive Genesis nostalgia kind of kicked in and I was like, Oh man, I could get, I could totally get a Saturn for like nothing. And I started buying up a lot of Saturn games and I found a new, more love in that again. Cause it was a very different style of games. I also got a PlayStation around that era and started getting back into Japanese games. Uh, and I had friends with N64s that I also played, but I wasn't, I wasn't really big on the N64 at that era, to be honest. I kind of felt like the PC occupied any space that the N64 might have, weirdly enough, because uh, the Ultra HLE also hit, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I I was able to then again experience Mario 64 and Zelda on my Voodoo-equipped PC, and I was like, well, I don't need... <laughs> Which, uh, it sounds silly, but that's, that's, that's how it was at the time. But I did have a Saturn and PlayStation. The PlayStation I had did have to be turned upside down. Uh, and yeah, the, the visuals and stuff you could get on Saturn and PlayStation, it wasn't PC quality at the time. I mean, 1998, like Unreal came out, seeing yeah. Unreal running on a 3DFX card back then. But what about Ridge Racer in 94? Oh God, I on freaking love Ridge Racer. Yeah, but and, no, was absolutely. That, was that a, a, a sort of... So that was the one, that was the point where I felt the urge to, well, first of all, trying to drew me back into the arcades. I played a lot of arcade stuff. Uh... And I didn't get a PS1 right away. It was just a money thing more than anything, but I played it at friends' houses uh, and I did enjoy the heck out of that, but it actually pushed this thing in me of like, I want to spec my PC to do this as well. Right. And at the time I didn't recognize enough of the sheer brilliance of Ridge Racer. I loved it, but you know, just trying to match those types of 3d graphics on a PC. And I felt like I could get further on the PC as PCs were expanding and I made it my mission to try, like, I wanted to experience something like Daytona USA on a PC. 
Mm-hmm. And I kept feeling like, oh, surely we can do this. We're getting closer. I got Screamer over here. This is sweet. Uh, but obviously, as we know, we didn't really match Daytona for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the PC was not the place to do that just yet. Because 60 frames per second was still kind of off the table for that kind of game, I would say. So I kept interest in the consoles during 94 to 98. And I did play PlayStation Arcade stuff as well. But it wasn't until... 97 since 97 is when i actually got both of the saturn and playstation on my own i believe Mm -hmm. it was uh so i also made the mistake of selling my game i kept other stuff but i sold all my game boy stuff to 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 fund uh another graphics card and i always (laughs) regretted it because it was all perfectly mint boxed games that i kept all just perfect it was awesome I sold them all to freaking, I, I don't remember, I sold them somewhere, and I took that money and got a, another graphics card. So, Oliver, did you ever have a PC moment? Or just well, it's sort of funny, because when I was a kid, like really young, I played almost exclusively on PCs, like from, I'd say, maybe 2003 to 2005 or 2006, when I was quite young. Okay. <laughs> I actually had a PC with um, an, Athlon, oh an AMD Athlon 3800+, and NVIDIA hmm. uh, 6800 GT. So quite a good okay. PC for, for that time period in like That's really 2005. Um, but then when the seventh gen of consoles rolled around, so it would have been uh, 10 years old, 11 years old, I got a 360 from that point and then pretty much played exclusively on consoles, never really looked back. But um, I always had a PC that was at least mid-range and... I did play a lot of games on PC um, from time to time, but only usually when they were giving me like a hugely improved experience over the consoles, like the Crisis games. And that's pretty much what I do today. <laughs> you Fair know, enough. like if a game is giving me yep. additional features or if I can't hit decent frame rates on console, if like the title is 30 FPS only, I will go over to PC, but otherwise I'll pretty much stay on consoles and I became very interested in in PC technology probably around 2010 or 2011 when I was starting to build PCs for myself so it's basically mm-hmm. my history but yeah nowadays I'm I'm still primarily a, a console gamer and that's reflected maybe in my in my coverage but also my recreational choices mm-hmm. fair enough I mean I've been thinking about this uh, thing about whether a console exclusive made them reconsider that PC was the be all and end all and actually if we go back to uh, the sort of late 80s, uh, 1990. Yeah, I've talked about this in the past, but basically up until that point, I was using uh, microcomputers, you know, up to the Commodore Amiga. And uh, yeah, when I had my interview at Computer and Video Games to, you know, join that team, man, I saw the Sega Mega Drive and it was doing things that that the Amiga just couldn't do, you know, Afterburner 2 is just like phenomenal. I just couldn't believe my eyes about that. So that was something which basically spelled the end of any interest that I had in like, you know, Amiga, Atari ST, that kind of generation. Yeah, that, that was, uh, that was certainly an eye opener. So yeah, that was another thing. It's not specifically PC, although I did have a PC at that point, but it was just a word processor. You know, I didn't even consider it for games. I don't think it could have done games at that point. It's like for desktop publishing and whatnot. So yeah, um, but yeah, I'll that tell was... you, Rich. Though uh, even back in the '90s, I was already in like DF mode as a kid <laughs> because like I would play or have games on like a Genesis. And then it's like, oh, there's a PC version of this, like Earthworm Jim or Pitfall. And I would want to get those versions, Sonic as well. 
just because I, it's like, I want to see what this is like on a PC. Right. Well, how is this compares? I was comparing Super NES and Genesis back then. I remember mm-hmm. like the first time I was like, well, they got a lens flare effect in Earth from Jim on the Super NES, but like you're missing some of the pixels. And I very distinctively remember looking at all of that stuff when I was back then and being super fascinated with how these different versions of the game stacked up. Yeah. Fascinating. So, uh, it kind of sent me down this path. Yeah, I mean, um, I remember the day where, where I was working in the computer and video games office and um, uh, one of the console importers rushed in with basically what was likely to be the first um, Super Famicom uh, that entered the country. And uh, we were just kind of like spellbound by uh, Super Mario World and um, F-Zero to the point where we thought it was over for Sega. You know, those games just look completely unlike anything that we'd seen on the Mega Drive at that point. It just seemed like the next step forward. But obviously history turned out to be something quite different there. You actually got a really good library on both machines. And they, you know, they, they kind of had a fantastic battle across the years there. Yep, yep. But yeah, pretty amazing stuff. Really nice question, that one from uh, Guy Mendez there. But that is the final question and therefore the end of the show. So if you enjoyed The longest it, episode ever. I think that might just be because of the uh, pauses we oh. had to take that the uh, end user oh, won't yeah. be seeing. Um, but yeah, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that is the end of the show. So if you did enjoy it, please do like, subscribe, share, ring the bell for random things that may or may not appear on your phone. Um, yeah, and um, DF Supporter Program, join us, join our amazing community, get early access to the Direct, get early uh, access to a whole bunch of content, the ability to submit questions for the Direct, submit topics, a whole bunch of amazing stuff happening there. But that's all from us for this week. Thanks for watching and supporting Digital Foundry. <laughs>